my overwhelming sense of external dread, existential dread even. <laughs> it's not external. <laughs> I mean, it's it could be external. <laughs> I'm Elizabeth Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading The Last Hero, and I normally make a pun at the beginning, but I thought I'd do something a bit more in theme with this, and so we're going to be talking about Cohen to the Temple and he's going to get evil harried. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we have to pause the intro because that's amazing, just for a moment. And then continue, uh, because our returning guest is illustrator and comic creator Georgina Chatterton. Welcome back, George. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you back. It's, yeah. This is great. We've, been, we've had a few guests recently who haven't been on the podcast for literally years, <laughs> and it's so nice to have people back. Mm. Who better to have back for this second illustrated Discworld book than the person who discussed the first illustrated Discworld book with us? And who illustrated us as well. So, like, that's just an extra side point. So, if you've ever seen the artwork of us, that is George's work. I'm very excited. I'm particularly excited because I think I was pretty down on the last book when I came on, as I'm not a huge um, uh, Kirby fan. Kirby fan. But Mm -hmm. I do love Kidby's work a lot more. Like, he's definitely my favourite of the two big illustrators. So, I'm excited to just be a big (laughs) fangirl. Could they have more different names like that? Oh my goodness! Yes, I I had to like look to the side of the book to make sure I said the right name because it's like particularly for dyslexic, where my brain doesn't quite can't deal. (laughs) I'm going to write it on my hand. I mean, it's good that they have very different first names, although they are quite short, generic white man Mm -hmm. names. So you know, Josh and Paul, George. It's been years since we last saw you. What's been going on for you? A pandemic for most, like most people. Um, yeah. Oh. yeah, I know, right? Have you heard? Yeah. Oh, um, it happened in Adelaide too? Amazing. Yeah. Most things don't happen in Adelaide. I know this is like a myth that nothing happens in Adelaide, but a, pa- a global pandemic actually did get here, so that's good. Um, mm-hmm. And didn't you miss got out. a bit of the earthquake as well. Yes. Uh, I woke up for it, which was fun. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everything's going off in Adelaide at the moment. What's been happening? I've been working on a graphic novel, which I think I was working on probably at the same time, last time I was on. However, since then I've um, been picked up by a publisher, which is really exciting. So I will be published by a real big book publisher person. So I'm still working on that, but it's uh, working on taking what I already had and turning it into um, keeping hopefully the soul and the vibe of the thing, but making it more fit into what the publisher needs to be able to sell a book, which mm. is basically make it a middle grade graphic novel, which means it's like for eight to 12 year olds. Um, and then there's like certain factors that go into that, particularly for the American market. And it's being published in America as well as Australia and a couple of other countries at the same time. So yeah, other things have been happening, but that's the big thing. <laughs> that's huge. So it's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's super exciting. And this is the autobiographical story. Yes. Of yeah. you growing up. 
Yes, with my brother, um, who uh, has autism and an intellectual disability. So it's about being a sibling of someone with a particularly nonverbal disability and what it's like growing up with them in the family. But it's it's changed quite a lot. Uh, so the big changes from the original one was me as a sort of young adult looking back at my childhood, whereas now it's me as a sort of like a preteen, early teen, um, living the stories a bit more, which is, again, one of those big changes that needed to be made for the publisher. Um, so that's mm. been a puzzle, to say the least, to, like, mm. change the, hopefully not tone exactly, but, like, how it's framed, I guess. The, the framing of mm. the story is, is quite a bit different. But, yeah, I'm still hoping it keeps the, the silliness and, and the fun that were really important to the first part. So, like, yeah, and then working to a page count, because when you're publishing it yourself, which was the original plan, you can just do whatever you want. But publishers yeah. tell you how many pages you can have and exactly what, like what they're for and that kind of thing. So, Oof. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Tricky. Well, that's huge. Uh, do you think that'll be finished this year or next year? I mean, I don't want to hold you to a deadline, <laughs> but I just, I just would like to give our listeners an expectation of when they might be able to read it. Yeah. Well, luckily my publisher holds me to a deadline. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the deadline at the moment is middle of next year that I hand it into the publisher and then it takes about 12 months to be printed and all the publicity stuff happening and so it'll be 2024 it will be coming out mm. so it's eight, it feels like ages away at the moment but you know we're also already into may so um, um yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you're listening to this in 2024 go out and get it now perfect yeah absolutely <laughs> Also, you're still running a comics festival now in Adelaide. Or- yeah, yeah. So, uh, Paper Cuts Comics Festival. We had um, a festival last year, which got a little bit postponed due to the original 2020 situation. Um, so, mm-hmm. it was really good. Yeah, went really well. So, we're in the middle of deciding how we're going to go forward with it because it's just me and my partner, who's also a Terry Pratchett fan and comics artist, <laughs> and we mostly run it together with some helpful volunteers and things. But it's, yeah, relying on grant funding because we want to pay artists and make sure everyone gets as much support as they can to come because we get interstate guests and as well as paying local artists to create new work for it. It's really exciting and love running the festival, but it's a, a lot of... A lot of work and with all the extra like elements of making sure everyone's safe, uh, with COVID restrictions is, has been a, an interesting challenge of someone who's not actually an events organizer by a trade. Like that's just, I'm just doing it because I love comics. So we're hoping we'll be able to do something again next year. So again, if you're listening to this in 2023 in the future, (laughs) you should go to the Paper Cuts Festival. It sounds amazing. George, you, you've been drawing. Discworld-inspired pictures for a very long time, haven't you? I have, yes. Uh, so I was very lucky that my dad read me Terry Pratchett, and my mum, but my dad predominantly read me Terry Pratchett as a kid, so I have grown up like before my Harry Potter obsession of, of the year when I was 9 and 10, I had Terry Pratchett, um, and so I would just constantly draw and even collect pictures of Terry Pratchett as well. And so, yeah, I've drawn myself... Uh, the first ever drawing that I can find is me drawing myself as Rincewind. So it's like me. So I've got tiny little pigtail things going on, but with the wizard hat and some, a pile of books and a wand, because I don't know, you got to have a wand. It doesn't, it doesn't make real sense. Um, and, but it's like very nineties, like the sneakers are so right. big and it's very much like small head going down to big sneakers. It's like the most nineties cartoon you can imagine. And I had my tiny little like glasses that I must have just got, which I was very proud of. So yeah, I was very, yeah, I found, and I just happened to find it the other day. And Rincewind was definitely my favorite character initially. Like I, you know, wanted to be able to do magic. So of course I wanted to be 
Rince Wind. So I would just draw myself as him. But it very much looks like me. It looks like me just with Rince Wind's clothes. That's it. <laughs> sort of. So and cool. we've seen this picture and it is amazing. We'll share it. But one thing you pointed out to us um, was that y- your artistic tendencies came through very early on as you were <laughs> – you can see that you've redrawn parts of it to get it exactly yep. how you want it to look. Yes, exactly. And this is why I highly recommend when I'm teaching my students now to pencil things first and then ink them so you can erase them easily. <laughs> yes, just like a comic book artist like you exactly. does in a professional Indeed. capacity. Uh, we, I think you vaguely mentioned this picture last time you were on, but now you've found it and you've been kind enough mm. to share it with us, we will share it with you listeners. Have a look at our show notes. You'll find it there. Uh, along with another illustration that you did, George. This is yeah. spectacular. Can you tell us about what inspired this? So this is my most recent Terry Pratchett fan art. Um, I've done quite a few over the years. But this one, um, basically I was chatting to Ben when we were doing our little tech talk and I was like, yeah, like, hang on, let me just make sure. Uh, Kid B, yes, mm-hmm. very good. good um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kid B is is really good and does a lot of reference to classical art pieces and so just like it got my brain going I'm like how can I reference a classical art piece with the characters in this book and hopefully do and I was like trying to look for Leonardo da Vinci style paintings that weren't in the book already and so the first one that pops up was The Last Supper and I was like well I reckon this is good it's got a lot of characters you can work from lots it's quite a recognizable thing particularly because I draw so cartoony like I can't I'm by no means as talented as could be in the like acrylics and paint and um style which is is beautiful and I'm like very jealous of that ability but like what can I do something that is um recognizably designed that I can turn mm. into a cartoon. So, yeah, I did a little The Last Hero's Last Supper with uh, the Silver Horde on one side and um, the the Wizards and uh, Patrician on, on the other side. The yeah, with Common in the middle, obviously. Yeah. Oh, so good. So good. We will share that with you too, listener. You'll find that in the episode notes on our website, pranchettpodcast.com. Cool. Well, we should – shall we get into the book? Because – yeah, like there's so so much fun stuff to talk about in this one. Uh, but we should start, as we usually do, with a reading of the blurb. He's been a legend in his own lifetime. He can remember the great days of high adventure. He can remember when a hero didn't have to worry about fences and lawyers and civilization. He can remember when people didn't tell you off for killing dragons. But he can't always remember, these days where he put his teeth. He's really not happy about that bit. So now with his ancient sword and his new walking stick and his old friends, and their very old friends, Cohen the Barbarian is going on one final quest. It's been a good life. He's going to climb the highest mountain in the Discworld and meet his gods. He doesn't like the way they let men grow old and die. It's time, in fact, to give something back. The last hero in the world is going to return what the first hero stole, with a vengeance. That'll mean the end of the world, if no one stops him in time. And in the original edition, there's one more line of this blurb that got cut out in subsequent Mm. editions, which is, someone is going to try. So who knows who the last hero really is? And I kind of see why they cut that. Yeah, I'm glad they cut that. That's a bit on the nose. Like, I think that's implied. <laughs> yeah, it's like those trailers that are increasing in frequency where they just show the whole movie in, a, like, a short film form. Yeah. 
because like you start off going, this looks great. I'm going to watch this. And you're like, wait, the, the big plot twist has happened and now we're on to the resolution and now they're saying the end. And I've seen it now. I don't, I don't need to go see yeah. this film. Like Mrs. Harrison Paris, like they, they go all through her Paris trip. I'm like, well, now I don't need to spend $19 to watch this. I still will. But. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't yeah. have to. It's a, but what a premise though. I love oh. it. You can kind of encapsulate it in the, that one sentence, you know, the last hero is going to return what the first hero stole. Um, and they, they talk about it doing it with interest at one point, <laughs> which, uh, is pretty funny. Um, and of course the first hero being, um, Mazda, the fingers Mazda, the Discworld equivalent of Prometheus who stole fire from the gods, which, uh, yeah, is pretty great. Mazda was first introduced in a footnote in Men at Arms when Colin and Nobby are discussing with Angua the useless thief Here and Now, who once had a plan to steal fire from Dunmanifestin even though it had already been stolen millennia ago. The footnote identifies Fingers Mazda as the first thief in the world who stole fire from the gods but was unable to fence it because it was too hot. A footnote within the footnote goes further. He really got burned on that deal. And I, I actually was wondering how long they would kind of string that out before they kind of explicitly said what that meant. It doesn't take that long, actually. I think I think they know people have worked it out so that they don't try to string it out too much. Well, the picture is pretty blunt. Like when they explain it, like the first hero, the picture is of like lightning and a guy holding fire. So it's, again, this thing that's, that I found so fascinating throughout this book is like, I tried to think of it as though if I read just the text, what would I get mm. from this story? Whereas the images are also really important to understanding it because no, that's totally. not always the case. So um, I don't think it's the case in Eric, for example, the, mm. the previous one we discussed, because that's been published without the illustrations as a paperback novel, whereas the, all the editions of The Last Hero include all of the illustrations. And they're essential to understanding it. Like it's, it's an important part of the text. So before we got, jump into the story, I just wanted to say, like, even on the title page of mine, and I have the older one, mm. I didn't realize this till halfway through and I flicked back for some reason. I'm not sure why. The tapestry they have at the top, oh, I yeah. think I, that's because I wanted to see if it was a tapestry they were talking about with the battle where they had to keep doing the fights again because the woman was, um, was doing it in real time and they're like, the media shouldn't be at battles. Um, but it's actually tapestry depicting the events alluded to, um, before the book takes place. So them fighting the large wars that they're all now eating begrudgingly. <laughs> Um, and the kidnapping of the minstrel. So I kind of love that that's the way you lead in, even though I skipped past it initially. So, mm -hmm. And it's in this sort of exquisite Bayou tapestry style, but with just a bit, just that much extra detail so that all the characters are very clearly who they are and match mm. the illustrations later. Paul Kibbe is one of those artists who just can do whatever style. <laughs> He's just like, oh, I'm going to do a painting in the style of this person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And there's some people who disparage that ability as just, oh, they're just, you know, copying. It's like, no, that's not what it is at all. It's an incredible versatility of style. You can tell it's him underneath all of that as well. Mm. Like his personality still comes through and that takes a lot of skill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah I was very enthusiastic about this book because this was the first time I read it and I'd always sort of been like, oh, you know, it'll be like a short, I think I'd mentally put it with Eric. I was kind of like, oh, well, it's not going to, and it's actually probably one of my new favorites because it's yeah. like an epic crossover one with all these amazing <laughs> illustrations and all of these topics I'm interested in. And I hate that I kind of just didn't really clock it until now. So, yeah. 
Lots of enthusiasm. Yeah. It does do a lot of things that I think fans really... It's not fan service. Like, I don't think Pratchett or Kidby did this because they thought the fans would like it. I think they did it because it was a story they wanted to tell. But it, there is, it's so rich with stuff for, you know, the Discworld fan. There's all these callbacks to previous books and, like, some of them are obvious and some of them are kind of hidden in the illustrations. Like, there's a lot of gags just in the pictures that are not mentioned in the text and all this amazing stuff. And then, you know, yes, it's a crossover. We've got characters from different sub-series of the Discworld books coming together We've got revisiting of old themes and old places. It's huge and fun and epic. Yeah. But let's get to the start. Let's let's uh, bring it just in case, listener, you haven't read the book. We know that there's always one or two of you um, or who haven't read it for a while. Let's get into the plot. This is, I think we should say up front too, it's not, it's not a long plot. I mean, it is a big format book. It's only, a, you know, 150 pages or so. And it's very heavily illustrated. So there's not a lot of text. It's like a probably novella length, I would say. But as a semi-speed reader, I kind of was like, oh, well, I will blitz through this. But I think for a book like this, you have to double your expected reading time because you need to spend a lot more time taking in the images and how they play with the text and even just how a page is laid out. Mm. So it's short, but in terms of time spent reading it, I'd say it's long. Yeah. A little bit like a comic book in that respect, I think. Yes. You know, like, there's not a lot of text in most comics. It depends on what comic, but... <laughs> but you don't just read them in, like, five minutes. Like, illustrations are an integral part of the storytelling. Yeah. Cool. Reading comics yeah. is definitely, like, a different kind of visual literacy in some mm. ways. Like, people can find it quite hard to read. Like, if you're just used to reading just text, like, they can find it quite disorienting to have to, like, apply pictures and text together. Like, it can be a really hard thing to to do because you're not used to it. And I think that can take in some ways why it takes longer as well because you can't quickly look at a panel or an illustration and get the instant information if you're not used to getting it. And also you shouldn't. You should obviously be able to, like, look at a picture and find all those little fun um, Easter eggs or, like, little references that the – particularly for an illustrated book, like, there's often lots of, like, little extra fun bits that you can really enjoy and savour, whether they apply for the story or if they um, are just, like – fun, nice little things for, the, mm. for you to read and enjoy. And this book is full of both of those, just just to the brim, just so many. It is a joy. And one that I found myself just flicking back sometimes as well because you just want to get a little bit extra information or something's referred to and you want to just take it in a bit more. So, yeah, it is a different reading experience and it did take me a little while to get back into it. Like I do read graphic novels, not as much as I'd like, but um, – but they also have such different personalities. And this one, I think it takes a while to get into the rhythm of how they're choosing to tell this story. Mm-hmm. So the first third took me a lot longer than the second and third thirds. But that's just because you're adapting to the language the same as you do in like something like Clockwork Orange, where there's the slang that you need to learn is getting mm-hmm. into the world. Or something like, you know, the writing of Bell Hooks, where she writes with no capitalization or and very little punctuation. And that doesn't seem like a big change, but you really have to get into the rhythm of it. And once you're there, it's great. But yes, mm. there's an adjustment period. Let's get to the start of the story. It starts in Ankh-Morpork, which is a great excuse to have a beautiful illustration of Ankh-Morpork. Um, where- Sorry to be the worst, but it doesn't start in Ankh-Morpork. Well, it oh, starts right. yes. Sorry. <laughs> you're in the right. classic Discworld way of the turtle and the, the cosmos, but in a way that I wasn't like, oh, this again. It was, <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> this time around. Is it because there was a picture, Liz? <laughs> I, well, I think also because it is so relevant to the plot. Mm. But yeah, And also because there was a beautiful picture. 
Okay, that's fair. It is relevant to the plot in this book. And you're right. There is a, there is a, a cosmic turtle intro, um, with a, which is beautifully illustrated. I can see you're both like referring to the copies of the book. You both have the, the original hardcover, right? Yeah. Which yeah. I do have a copy of as well. I also have the second edition, which has a different cover and has extra illustrations in it, which were reproduced in the subsequent printings. Although there's not, I don't think there's a lot of editions of this. I don't know if it's still in print. I tried to find this out. Because they did the original hardcover. So, if you haven't seen the book, listener, it's a large format, kind of almost square. Um, it's like a coffee table book, I guess, mm. is, is kind of the size that you're looking at. And the original dust jacket is beautiful. It's got um, Cohen standing on a mountain with his sword and his cane um, on the front cover. And the back cover's got this beautiful illustration of Leonard de Quirm looking down at the disc world from its moon which we'll get to. This is a very good book for understanding the cosmology of the disc, um, which is beautiful, uh, but with no writing on the back. It's just the illustration. Whereas the the paperback has uh, a totally different illustration of Rincewind in the pose of The Scream <laughs> by Edward Munch, which is one of the new illustrations that appears in that book. And then it does have some review quotes on the back. And there's a later edition that they did in like a small format, it's like a slightly smaller than your standard paperback, but square, and it has all the pictures in it. And I'm like, I don't want to look at the pictures that small. This is a terrible idea. And I don't think that one has ever been reprinted. I think maybe the larger format one has, but not the smaller one. Actually, Ben has this backwards. The smaller format paperback edition, first published in 2007 with the entire silver horde on the front, is the one that's still in print. Because the illustrations require the layout to stay the same, its page numbers match the second larger edition exactly, and it has all the same bonus illustrations missing from the original hardcover. You can also get this version as an ebook. But if you can get your hands on a copy, do it. Like it's a it's really a lot of fun. I have two things to say about this. First of all, I got a second-hand copy of the old version and I'm because fa- I love second-hand copies of things because of the history of them. Mm. And someone has painstakingly whited out the previous owner's name on it and you can still read through it because like, you know, I read Enid Blyton's and you just hold it up to the light and you read through it. And I think it's from Angus and Robertson in Marion, which I think is in Adelaide. It even is. Though this like- one came from Sydney. But it is. So I was like, oh, it's like that's kind of serendipitous because like a friend bought mine from me from a different state, but I think it's from my home state, which, and now it's in my new home state, and that's kind of nice, but why is it whited out? Um, second thing I want to say, I'm in two minds about the, the new cover being of Rincewind. I love it mm. as an illustration, but I don't feel like he's central to the plot, and arguably Cohen isn't necessarily the last hero, but Rincewind definitely is not, so it, I think, sets up mm. a confusion in the mind of readers. Also, not sure that I love a book that's about age and what happens when you've achieved everything you want to do, then centering a young person who's still in this, like, prime of their life on the front. But I may be just going too hard on that. Because, like, they do want to show the new cool illustration, and it is a new cool illustration, but in terms of summing up what the book's about. Hmm. What's interesting, this second edition in the larger format, the paperback, is the only one that has that screen cover. The subsequent one, the smaller one, has another illustration, which is the entire silver horde on the top of a mountain, all of them together with Cohen in the middle. They're in action pose. So mm. it's just sort of, it's a, it's when they're getting into one of the battles in the book, I think. Yeah, I did lie about saying two things. I've got one more thing to say. <laughs> I also prefer the larger format, but as someone who generally likes to read in bed before going to bed, it was there was a lot of 
danger. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> yes. hardcover and very large and finding the right position, not great. So I think it's good to dedicate an ergonomic spot mm. and posture to, like, to reading it properly. I will say, too, there are some two-page spread illustrations, particularly in the new edition, because all of the new illustrations are all two-page spreads. There's eight of them. Which, when you're reading it in the big card cover and you can't really squash the book flat, you lose a bit of that detail in the middle, mm. which is unfortunate. But you can get a digital edition of the book. So, if you can't get the physical one, there's still a digital edition available. You don't find it in the series with the others because it's an illustrated book. They do it in a slightly different format. Uh, but you can get a really good look at those uh, two-page illustrations in that. New one has a map too, doesn't it? Because I felt like that was something I really wanted from mm. this book. A map. And didn't have. So. Mm. Yeah, that's the first of the new illustrations. Mm. But we'll, we'll we'll get to those just in <laughs> yeah. case. I might right. describe all of them as we go because some you listening, in fact, might have only read the first edition and you don't know what the new pictures are. So we, we'll tell you about them. But, yeah, so we do open with a, a lovely cosmic turtle intro that is the only one that has not made Liz want to just skip ahead, <laughs> uh, which is great. And the beautiful picture of sort of a Chewin, this is a double-page bread, sort of like flying overhead in the manner of like a Star Trek spaceship or something. It's great. And there's a great illustration of, yes, the first hero stealing fire from the gods. But then we cut to Ankh Morpork, where Lord Vetinari has received an albatross message from the Gaetian Empire um, or Gatian Empire. I think we decided a Gaetian was yeah. kind of the way we wanted to pronounce it. Makes our pun work better for the episode title. <laughs> it, does. it does. And sometimes that's all the reason you need. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, from the counterweight continent uh, comes a, a pointless albatross with a message for Vetinari saying that uh, Genghis Cohen, ruler of the uh, empire since he took it over in interesting times, got a bit bored and has left. Uh, but he's not just bored. Uh, he seems quite angry about something. And he has given the cryptic message that he's going to return what the first hero stole. And he's gone to the hub of the world, the tall mountain, Cori Celesti, in the middle of the disc world, which is where the home of the gods, Dun Manifestin, is right at the top. He's going to go there with some Agation thunder clay, which is like a hugely explosive magical substance. And he's going to blow them up. That's That seems to be, I mean, it takes a little while to tease out that that's what's going to happen, but that seems to be what's happening. He's not going alone. He's taking the Silver Horde with him, except mm. for one of them who sadly died choking on a bit of cucumber. Not a concubine, um, <laughs> but the book is dedicated to him, which I thought was a lovely title. Yeah, oh, I really love that. Yeah. Vincent. Old, Old Vincent. 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 Yes. Was he called that when he was young? I have forgotten. It's been a while since Interesting Times because we read it before we ourselves were living in Interesting Times. It's true. Yeah, I think he was he was old Vincent because he was the old he was the actual oldest one. I think. I think. Okay. I will look that up. Which means he was like probably a hundred or something because Boy <laughs> Willie is in his eighties, <laughs> and he's the he's the young one of the group. Um, although this is set at least a few years later, you know, like they've been in the Gaetian Empire for a while. But this, uh, yeah, the death of old Vincent has spurred up some anger that Cohen has about the way that he and his friends have been allowed to get old and sort of decline and also just die for no good reason, like not even going out in a bang. So he's determined that that's what he's going to do. And this seems like a bad idea, but it seems even worse when Vetinari talks to the wizards about it because they explain that an explosion that big at the center of the disc will disrupt the disc's magical field. For probably about two years, 
Um, and that will cause the sun to fizzle out and crash into the disc and, you know, all the seas will dry up and probably the elephants and the turtle will either die or cease to exist. Um, and as one of, I think it's Lord Downey says, oh, that'll all happen in about two years, will it? And Ponder Stivert says, no, that'll happen in the first 10 minutes. It's like, <laughs> it's an apocalypse, you know, it's the mm. end of the world. So that's not good. <laughs> that, that whole thread really, rem- like, help, like, Obviously, there's like the climate emergency and everything now, which um, what for, and has been for a while. But that whole conversation, on a lighter note, reminded me of when I was in year one and my teacher was trying to teach our class why water is important. And she's like, "Okay, well, like if we didn't have water, like all this stuff would happen." And there's a silence, and then a girl goes, "It'd be okay. We could drink coke." <laughs> and that was like the vibe of like t- that group. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Did your teacher explain that Coke is made mostly out of water? Yes. And I think she was like, because she was a very good teacher, I think she had planned it so that someone would put forward a suggestion and then you can be like, oh, actually, it's in more things than you think. So, yeah. Ah, cunning. Very cunning. Um, But, yes, they need a plan. They need a plan to do something about this. Um, And, uh, it's. I mean, it's, look, it's a... It's a real passing of the buck, right? Like, what's Two Flower doing? Like, where's the where's the Egyptian <laughs> Empire's solution to this problem? I guess they feel like we can't go against the, you know, desires of our emperor, even if he's going to blow everybody up. And maybe they don't know that it's going to end the world over there. Well, maybe um, they have their own, like, B-plot that's going on that we just don't know about. It's like yeah. in Cabin in the Woods, how there's, like, all the different <laughs> plans to stop the apocalypse. And, like, you're all doing them in the hopes that one of them will succeed. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a gap, of, there's a there's a power vacuum in the Egyptian Empire now. What's going to happen there? We don't know, and we never find out. It's never it's never visited, uh, or or is it? We'll we'll have to watch out for any mentions of the empire in later books. And if anyone has any suggestions of what they think would have happened mm. while he's away, would love to hear them on any of our social medias. Yeah, because like uh, spoiler alert, he's not coming back. So um, <laughs> that's I mean. his intention anyway. <laughs> But yeah, so all of these various guild heads and priests and everyone important in the city kind of hears about this and starts to come and talk to the patrician and they want to try and figure out what to do. And he expertly, it's one of my favorite things that happens at the start of the book, he kind of expertly puts them all on their own committees and lets them kind of argue amongst themselves. And then he closes a door and just talks to the people who can actually get it done. And their biggest problem is that Colin's got a big lead on them. He's already headed to the center of the disc. He's nearly there. So they have to catch him up which is not an easy thing to do. It's hundreds and hundreds of miles away and they can't use standard kind of magical means of transportation because those won't work at the center of the disc where the magical field is all crazy and will mess them up. So they can't take a broom or a flying carpet or anything like that. So they have to turn to science and there's only one man on the disc you turn to for science. And that is, of course, Leonard DeQuirm, who here gets probably his greatest moment of glory since the whole submarine incident in Jingo. And he's really, he really gets to shine. I love that he gets to actually go on the adventure. He's not just building a thing. Yes. This is like the first, like, so this is my first time reading this, as I mentioned. And I was like, it's going to be like always. I go in and ask Leonard for a thing and he makes a few sketches and then he disappears from the plot. And then he's there for the whole time. And I was delighted because he's a character I've always wanted to spend more time with. And now I get to. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Some of my favorite uh, quotes a little bit later on are just like, Leonard interacting with certain elements that I don't want to spoil it yet. So I'm excited when we get to that mm. a bit further down. Like, yeah, I, I agree. Let's like it. I always hear for Leonard. He's so great. He's so MVP. great. <laughs> um, and his plan, you know, he does indeed have a plan because like, how would you get to the disc 
you know, send her a disc really quickly. And he's like, oh, well, you could use a flying machine. It's not just any flying machine. It's a machine that's going to fly off the edge of the disc and loop around it in order to get very quickly to the middle of the disc world. And I mean, basically, this is a space mission. Let's not, let's not mince words. This is the book where people from the disc world go into space, <laughs> which is cool. Like how we, we've all wondered about this, surely, because from the very early books, there's such a, a clear idea that Pratchett has about how the system of the disc works with the tiny sun and the tiny moon. And yeah, I'd always wanted to know more about it. So this was like, yeah, very cool. <laughs> So that's the setup at home. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, Cohen and the Horde are on their way, arguing with each other and fighting monsters, which all pretty much happens off screen. Like we never see them fight any of the monsters. Then they just complain about how oh, it wasn't as good as that dungeon in Clatch or whatever. <laughs> I love that they're still like terrifying and good at you know, yeah. the thing that they do, like because they're older and everything, but they, it's just no problem. Like they can just hack up some. Wild monks. They've got ethically dubious fish. Not a not an issue. Like it's just totally. Yeah, they've got a can do attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. It's that kind of ultimate expression of that idea of of Cohen, really, which is he's an old barbarian, and you only get to be an old barbarian if you're very good at the barbarian part. But they're not alone. There's the Silver Horde, and most of them, apart from Old Vincent, of course, are, are there. In fact, all of them are there. Not all of the Silver Horde read a mention in this book. We were sad to see no reference to Ronald Teach Savaloy, the ex-teacher who tried to help the Horde conquer the Agatian Empire peacefully and who died and was taken to Valhalla during the events of interesting times. No doubt he's sad too, not to be reunited with his old friends. So there's... What are they named? There's uh, Old Hamish. Truckle the Uncivil. Truckle the Uncivil. That's right. <laughs> And uh, what's the other one? There's another one, isn't there? Caleb the Ripper. Caleb the Ripper. That's right. I have a question about Mad Hamish because they just describe him as being in the wheelchair, but like in the illustration, he's got real Mad Max energy. So (laughs) I just, but I was searching the text to see if there's any reference to that. And there's not. So that's again, something you get just from the image, which works really well. Yeah. And the pictures of them are great. I love how he's found something distinct about each one. Because, I mean, Cohen is such an iconic character. Mm. He's got a very distinct look, particularly in the way that Kidby draws him. Well, you know, he's bald, but he's got the really long beard and he's not wearing much apart from a loincloth. In, in this one, a little sort of furry cape and big boots. But the the others have their own looks, you know, like one of them's still got some hair. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of them's wearing a thing on his head. It's, it's, uh, but they're all distinct and they all mm. get their own little portraits at this point in the book where they're being introduced, which I really loved. Not Caleb. I was like, where is he? Where is he? And it was like way later. And I'm like, why? I want to see what he looks like. <laughs> He'll turn up. I just love the little pot bellies. That's my absolute favorite. More pot bellies, please, in any <laughs> illustration ever. And jaws that are too big and at the wrong angle. It's just mm. so good. <laughs> that is a real, that's a real thing with them, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a very heroic sort of thing to have a big, big chin, but also have it offset. Just like, that's the noise I always imagine that goes with that pose of the face. <laughs> no, I just and, but their conversations. I I know it's like a classic joke where the guy is like a bit sort of hard of hearing, and they're talking about the minstrel, and he's like, "Oh, it's not this; it's a lute." And then Hamish is like, "What?" And he's like, "It's a lute." He's like, "Ah, oh, yes, I used to lute." <laughs> 
Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of those gags which are like, oh, we've heard this kind of gag before. But Pratchett's really, I think, deft in this book anyway, maybe not in every book, but in this book at doing it just enough that you love it and not so much that you're tired of it. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Uh, but look, as they're going up there, like I said, they're not alone. The Silver Horde have with them the minstrel who is never named. We don't really know what his deal is, except that he was playing at like a wedding or something in Hank Moorpork or a party. Well, and tapestry, uh, he's at a party and they kill everyone else except yeah. him. There's, a, there's that one thing. Yeah. There's like a, like a little that they kill, they chop all the heads off the guards who both resemble the guards from the Bayou Tapestry, but also it reminded me of that scene in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, you know, when Lancelot goes to the wedding. <laughs> And he oh, just yeah. kills he just all kills the people everyone. as he's going up the stairs. It was like that. But, yeah, they go through this party. They kill a bunch of people and they kidnap this minstrel because they want him to write a great saga of their last adventure. And he's really not sure he's up to the job because they want it to be this epic thing. And he's like, I'm not really that sort of – I'm not a bard. I'm a minstrel. <laughs> like, But I kind of love that. He's a great character who it's weird that it's not weird that he's never named. Like there's a reason for that in the in the plot. But I kind of wish he was because I wanted him to come back later on, particularly after the transformation he goes through in the book. But he's not the only person they meet. Um they also meet evil Harry Dredd. <laughs> <laughs> the small business owner basically who's like never quite made it in the dark lord business but he he sticks to the code and he does what he can even if it's like what's he had a temple to the dark lord but on his allotment yes yeah. <laughs> and he used to have a the shed of doom i actually I, I seem to remember when they did the terry pratchett exhibition of like all stuff uh to do with the disc world and terry pratchett's career and life um and this is a few years ago now i think it was about 2018 um, so it was a couple of years after he died. I, from memory, I think they built the Shed of Doom, I think, for that exhibition. I'll Google it up. I'll find the pictures. But <laughs> so good. <laughs> and he's got his horde of numpties. <laughs> yes. He's his idiot henchmen. For that. Because he, he searches very hard to only employ complete idiots who cannot do a good job and are easily fooled by E.G., a hero putting on a helmet <laughs> and pretending to be one of them. Just, yeah. That, Store that, your keys on your belt, fall asleep. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Like so many traditional things. I like, the, and then look, it's a fun trope to have a character. And this is such a Pratchett and Discworld thing to like go, that's how the stories have to go. So that's, I have to make sure that they can go that way. And in return, you know, he gets to escape. They always let him escape at the end of whatever evil scheme he's doing that gets foiled, but he almost succeeds. And so his legend gets bigger and the hero's legends get bigger. But he doesn't seem to have done nearly as well as Colin and the other heroes. But he's on his way also to the gods. Isn't that kind of like hand in hand? Because he Mm. is their nemesis. And because if they're doing well, he's doing badly. Mm. Because they've all like defeated him lots of times, whereas like- yeah, but he kind of implies that part of the deal is they kind of let him succeed just enough that he's notorious and everyone thinks he's dangerous. Because if, if they defeat him really easily every time, then it doesn't enhance their reputation. I thought he was kind of like the, the middle-level boss that you fight before you get to the big boss. Like <laughs> If you're like trying to like complete your Pokedex, like he's not the guy at the end of the gym. He's no. like halfway along and he's fine and he does what he does well, but like, and they do like follow the code and let him get away. But if he was like a truly excellent one, he would have also like risen to the heights that they did. So uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. I, that's an interesting idea because it is hard to pin that down because he's not, he's not, he's not that famous. He's clearly not doing that well, 
but he's the only one who still abides by the old code. Like, all of the new heroes and the new villains don't do that. But it's also like the thing with Dark Lords, because they're the ones that the heroes are fighting and stuff. Mm. All the truly excellent ones would eventually get slain by the very good heroes, because that's the ultimate goal of it. And all the terrible ones would get slain really early, so the only ones who could really survive <laughs> are the like the ones that are fine. Except that part of the code is letting them escape, right? Mm. Yeah, but the new ones, like they said, that they, they now block up the, the tunnel, so like... Oh, yeah. I have to draw a map of, like, how, like how, the the scales of how mm-hmm. well a Dark Lord can succeed in a time when heroes are diminishing. It's difficult. I feel like middle management is the epitome of Dark Lordness, though, right? <laughs> Here's a fruit shop on the side, um, but runs all the admin. <laughs> I mean, look, it's, again, very Pratchett. It's like the demons in Eric. The whole thing is, well, the, particularly the new demon prince is, like, using all this bureaucratic nonsense to really torture people and, and have demons torture people by showing them pictures of their holidays and stuff like that. Like it, it's mixing that mundane with the sort of horrible and fantastical, which is something I love so much. Mm, Pratchett does it so well. Absolutely. But look, they decide that he's going to come with them. Uh, mm. even though he says, I probably have to betray you a bit. And they're like, yeah, no, we expect that. That's fine. And almost immediately, as soon as he gets a quiet moment to himself, he prays to his evil gods to let them know that they're coming. Which is great. Mm. Meanwhile, Leonard's plan is coming together. Um, his plan is, yes, we're going to build this flying machine. It's going to fly off the edge of the disc and loop around and get into the middle at incredible speed. But we're going to have to launch it off the rim, the edge of the world, which means we're going to have to get on a bunch of boats and go. And we've got no time to waste. So I'm going to have to build it on the way. I'm going to need some, you know, apprentice craftspeople and we're going to need a crew. Not many, just a couple of people. And who are you going to send? And eventually it becomes clear that it will be Captain Carrot Iron Founderson who volunteers to go and Rincewind who volunteers <laughs> to go, even though he doesn't want to. And he makes that very clear. And I love that scene where he's just explaining, look, I'm volunteering for this, but I don't want to, but it's probably better than me running away and ending up accidentally on this mission anyway, which mm-hmm. is what would happen. <laughs> Because I know Cohen and I know stuff about this and it's just, I'm just going to be involved. I can't avoid it. <laughs> and he does have a meta thing where he's like, he does have a point. He does seem to come back. And he's like, yep, see, look, it's starting already. Like, <laughs> that would have sent me on to- <laughs> I mean, this is the big crossover part of the book is that we've got Rincewind, we've got Carrot, uh, we've got Leonard Quirm, and they're all on a boat with the wizards and the patrician heading to the edge of the world. And this is where the, this first of these new illustrations come in. There is a little map. Yeah. Which shows where they're going, the path that they're taking towards Kroll. This is, this book is really like, it's so many callbacks to the really early Discworld books, like stuff that was in The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic, like Kroll and the Circumfence, which we'll come to in a minute. But yeah, they've got to head to the edge and launch the ship off the edge. They're also taking with them a boatload of swamp dragons, <laughs> which are integral to the plan of how this ship is going to fly. And it's a good breakdown of the different kinds of swamp dragons, which I loved. Oh, It's my absolute favourite illustration in the whole book. <laughs> I'd love to have this as a poster. It's a, can we talk about this for a minute? Because this yes. is like a, it's just one whole page, but it's a whole page. Or is it two pages? No, it's two pages, isn't yeah. it? It's a double page and then a third page that goes in like, and has them numbered and explains them. And I love this because like, it gives each of them a personality, makes it a bit weird. Yeah. It's like a it's guide just- to the different breeds of swamp dragon. Yeah, it just feels so beautifully British and like ridiculous. And it's very crufts. 
It is very cross, well, and I loved it so much. Like, I would – I copied this basically as a child. Like, I would copy out all the names and, like, practice saying them and come up with my own dragon names. I absolutely – because I was 10 when this book came out originally, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I read it at the time. I was probably read it – it was read to me, but I would have looked at the illustrations. And it's just like – I don't know. Pratchett has this really good way of good mouthfeel with words. Like, it just feels good in your mouth when you say some things. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a really – is that a weird way to say it? I don't know. That's, um, I don't know. Perfect. I get it. And it's like the smooth courser. The flared smut. Yeah, exactly. So good. The Nothingford Blue. Wonderful scales, but a tendency to homesickness. It's just like it feels good. <laughs> and has he, and look, and you just picked one there. Like, there's so many little references to other things in this book. Like, not just back to the Discworld's past, but the, the Nothingford Blue, which looks sad. Like, I, surely that's like a reference to the parrot in the dead parrot sketch who mm. is pining for the fjords. Like, yeah. that's- <laughs> And as reference to a previously referenced place on the Discworld from books. Like, it's, there's so many little things like that. I love it. And just like this one, hoards pickle jars. That's just something that is known <laughs> about its type. <laughs> That's the Jessington's Deceiver, if anyone um, is interested in getting one, of course. <laughs> I quite like the Golden Deceiver. Makes a good watch dragon. Should not be allowed near children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And oh, the retiring man. smut and how it's illustrated, <laughs> not often seen, and it is like illustrated, like kind yeah. of in the background, a little bit faded. It's so good. It's so good. I'd very much recommend looking at the whole list and spending some time on it. It is great. I do like, I think my favorite is number 30, Gutley's Leaper, which is a flightless <laughs> one. It can run really fast, but it's wearing like a little tartan mm. vest. <laughs> I look so uh, uncertain. They all look so unhappy as well. There's like one, there's, oh, there's that one goofy one right up in the sort of top left corner that is like the only happy looking one, which is yeah. called Ramkin's Optimist. <laughs> oh. Uh, that was great. Well, seldom explodes. I'd be optimistic at that too. <laughs> yeah. And there's some great illustrations in the style of Lynn de Quirm, which means they're in the style of Leonardo da Vinci, uh, where he's like sort of drawn the wing of a dragon and made some notes about how they fly and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's very cool. And there's a little um, note about how they put it the right way because he does like to write backwards, mm, um, mm. like Leonardo da Vinci. And I, I do enjoy that. That's another thing throughout the book. It's like sometimes there are like two different sets of characters on the same double page spread, but often there's like one that's more dominant and they give those pages the personality, like aesthetically. Mm. So you can see the sketches on Leonard de Quorum's pages. And, like, in the gods' pages, they're very grand. And they often have the two, like, the columns, like, around the edge because kind of, like, they're, like, everywhere and seeing you. They're yeah. omnipotent, yeah. but they are taking pills for that, so that's okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, great. There's a lot of lot of jokes with the barbarians not understanding words and getting things wrong. It's very funny. Well, words are dangerous to them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, meanwhile, while the wizards and everyone else is sailing towards the edge of the world, rapidly constructing this craft that's going to fly off the edge, the horde are still continuing up the mountain. They're getting past trials where there's monsters and some riddles and some mad monks, and they're all just like they they solve all this stuff off screen and are just like, yeah, that was that was I've done that before. And they get to the base of the mountain where they find another old friend, Vina the Raven Haired. Now this I thought this was slightly odd because we had a a woman barbarian hero in one of the previous books, but I, and I thought, why didn't you reuse her? And then I was like, well, it doesn't make any sense because she was still young <laughs> and Cohen was already old. So we needed a different one who was older, but yeah, Vina the Ravenhead, pretty great, had retired from being a barbarian hero, like married and was running an inn. 
Um, her children but, are just so disappointing and stressful. <laughs> yeah. And then her husband's died. And she's like, well, I don't need to be here anymore. I'm going to go on an adventure. So she's also heading to the gods and she's also found as they, as they, when they meet her is kind of when they realize they've all found this mysterious map that shows where all of the perils are and gives you a little bit of a clue as to how to get past them. And they start to think that maybe that's a bit suspicious. And she's got the great line. It's like, I've always wondered, you know, when you're wandering around a supposedly abandoned dungeon, who's left all these like health potions and maps <laughs> and ammunition lying around? And I'm like, mm, Harry Pratchett really did play a lot of video games. <laughs> Very specific thing, though. It's actually the minstrel who highlights how suspicious that is. And that's where it flicks to the gods who are playing games with them. And it shows us yes. that they're not as autonomous as they think they are. And we get to learn a bit about Nuggin, who is the god of the area where the minstrel is from. And he's just like a stern little tiny mustachioed man who just seems oh. like a the kind of person who calls council meetings for silly things. Yes. And he bans the things worst. like garlic and mushrooms and he's quite a new god. But that's when I think I realized that the minstrel was more of a player than I thought he was going to be. I just thought he was a background guy to throw up and be a comic relief. Yeah. And I mean, he's kind of drawn. I mean, there's not that many pictures of him in the early part of the book. There's sort of the one where he's introduced where he's wearing, and he's got, we've got to talk about his outfit because he's wearing this like, maybe not traditional for the historically accurate, but traditional what we now think of a minstrel wearing, like so this yellow and red and puffy sleeves and this ridiculous hat with a big plume coming out the top of it. It's crazy. But that outfit does not survive. <laughs> um, neither does his loot. Uh, but, you know, we, we'll come back to that. But yeah, he's it's a great symbolic character. of his, his change, like, cause he's living this kind of silly, frivolous life that he's actually not that committed to. And he literally has it burned away from him and he has to rebuild from scratch and he gets to kind of choose what his new shape, his new outfit, his new instrument is going to be. And that's kind of interesting how like the outside reflects the inside. Mm. Yeah. Very clearly in this character. And he's definitely the character that changes the most in the whole book. Like everyone kind of stays the same kind of character, whereas mm. he has a yeah. complete character change and which is reflected in the illustration as well. Yeah. Yeah, that final one, like as and we'll get mm. there, but the final one was just like oh. Yeah, know, so good. Took Yeah. So good. And some great musical reference stuff in there too. You brought up that the gods noticed them sort of tweaking to the hang on, wait a minute, is this a setup a bit? Mm. But they don't care. They're like, oh, this would be great. And it's also at that time when we throw to the gods and we see Nuggin is there, there's the beautiful illustration of all the gods around the table, Mm. very like, you know, Mount Olympus style playing their game. They've cropped the goddess of the afternoon out of the main one, but they put her on twice on the (laughs) the next page. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. I do like the way that my my favorite thing, I think, is when they, they sort of reveal that, you know, Nuggin has forbidden things like garlic and chocolate. And they sort of look at him and the the other gods are like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> that is that is hardcore, man. Why does anyone believe in you? And uh, we will hear more about Nuggin mm. in a future mm. book. But yes, what a jerk. <laughs> oh, my God. And he looks like oh. a jerk. He's just illustrated so, like, peevishly. It's great. Mm. He's even got a little clenched fist. Yeah. He reminds me a little bit of Ronnie Barker's character in uh, Open All Hours. Do you oh, remember yeah. that show? Mm. Like, he's not a nice character, but he's, yeah, he's got the little moustache and the sort of centre part and, yeah, just just a jerk. So good. Anyway, the gods are, are into it, though. They're playing the game and this is, again, harking back to classic Discworld stuff, the first two books particularly, where they're playing a game with Rincewind as one of their pieces. Um, well, I say the first two books, it's more the light fantastic, but yeah, it's and great Homeward Bounders by Dino and Jones, which I strongly recommend. I've recommended it before, but I recommend it again. 
Okay. I I have to read it. We've got to do an episode where we just read some of these other books, I think. Yeah. We'll we'll get to that. (laughs) The ships get to the edge or near the edge, near Kroll, and they're ready to launch this flying ship. But Rincewind's like, hang on, did you say we're near Kroll? What about the fence? You know, the circumference that stops things going over the edge and everyone sort of looks at each other and is like angry that no one thought of this up until now. And it's a great moment of like being a fan and going, yeah, what about the circumference? <laughs> oh, yeah. And Rincewind's kind of like the person who's read the earlier books and remembers. <laughs> he is us. It's also nice to see so much continuity in a Discworld book. I think some people would put too much stock in it. Like, I don't think it's as important as some people would like it to be. And I think Pratchett usually has a pretty healthy disdain of reusing stuff unless he sees a really good reason to do it. But in this book, it really works. And it is fun. Like I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fanboy of various things. Like it, it's so nice to see something that you remember from an earlier work come back again and stuff like, you know, Rincewind remembering the circumference and them having to figure out how they're going to blow it up is great. And again, it shows them why Leonard Decorum is locked up in a tower because he innocently comes up with these horrible <laughs> weapons of war just casually. But he's it's like, just- but, and they, and his early bits keep being like, which will definitely bring like peace. And brotherhood among people, like, he just, like, signs things off with that. I'm like, oh, he's sweet, gentle soul. Yeah. He's so, he's so smart, but so stupid at the same time. I love him. Innocent. Yeah, so they, they blow up a bit of the circumference, and now they launch the ship off the edge, and we finally get to see it, and it is, I mean, this reminded me, have we all seen The Mysterious Cities of Gold? No. No. Wait, in real life? No. Okay. <laughs> This was a cartoon of the 80s. Uh, it was about a bunch of kids, basically, who kind of stowed away on a ship because one of them discovers they're, like, secretly the last child of the Incas, and they get on a ship to go to the New World to try and figure this out. I'm really, like, sort of massacring the actual plot of the series. But anyway, it was also one of those joint European-Japanese animated shows, but hmm. it had this plot where they they get to the mysterious ancient city of gold, uh, and they eventually find- the mystical condor, which is this giant gold jet plane built by ancient technology that looks like a bird. And this, the kite, which is what they end up calling Leonard's ship, really kind of reminded me of that. Beautiful. And apparently they made a model of it for reference once they've kind of figured out what it would look like for uh, Paul Kidby to use to draw it. I want to see that model. I'm going to see if mm. I can find a photo of it somewhere on the internet. But it's it looks so cool. It's this giant kind of- It's not gold in the book. It's kind of like bronzy, I guess. And it's gripping this giant salmon in its claws, which is like the stage rockets that fire to blast it off the edge of the disc and get it into orbit. Oh, it's so good. And there's some great pictures of it. One of the extra illustrations is just one of it blasting off the edge of the disc straight at your face, <laughs> which is also magnificent. And once we get to see it and we see the inside of it and there's some great illustrations of the cockpit and all the stuff and there's like, you know, Leonard's drawings, there are so many references to NASA and actual space flight missions. It's crazy. It's so much fun. Pratchett, I think, had distilled all of his love of NASA into this one story. Oh, it feels like so much happens on this space journey, but it's, it's, a, rel- it's a relatively small part of the story, but it just feels like- such a treat to see this weird part of the disc that you never really think about, like the tiny moon in particular that they land on emergency-wise. But it's just, oh, it's so good. Yeah, and I mean, I, in hindsight, it was probably a bit obvious from the beginning of what was going to happen, but I did not expect it. I was like, it took me a while to register that it was going to be like a space crew. And then like 
Like, it was before they had the illustration of them as like astronauts, but yeah. I'm like, oh, if I was going to do like a space story for a disc, I don't know what characters I would have chosen, but these are the perfect ones in hindsight, though I would have liked to see what happened to Angua literally on the moon. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, wow. Mm. That is interesting, isn't it? Werewolf stories are so metaphysically about the moon, but yeah, what happens if you put werewolves on the moon? She become the strongest yeah. werewolf of all time. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but yes, things don't go according to plan. The dragons do fire, so they're using the dragons for propulsion. They have little mirrors that they flip down that show the dragons the reflection of themselves. They get very angry and belch fire out of their mouths in order to try and kill the dragon they can see in the mirror. And they've all been fed on a particular diet, which will make sure they don't explode. But they have different stages of this salmon that the the bird is holding that sort of blast off and get them off the edge of the world. But it doesn't go according to plan. They're going too fast. They're falling too far. And they can't quite figure out why until they realize that the librarian who is on the journey with them has fallen asleep in the cockpit behind the chairs. And the added weight is is throwing everything off, and also they're running out of air. He has to wake up to eat the apple, so he hasn't been asleep the whole time. He knows. <laughs> That's right. At one point, he's hiding. Yeah. Yeah. But it's nice, you know, of course you've got to send an ape into space. Like, that's just, that's another NASA reference, or space program reference. The disk space program kind of goes from nothing to moon landing <laughs> in one go. <laughs> It's great. But this weight problem means they're not really sure what they're going to do. They're now heading off the edge and they go underneath the disc and they're heading between the legs of the elephants over the back of a Chewin and seeing for real that this is exactly how their world works, which is a bit full on. Mm. Meanwhile, Cohen and the Horde are just walking up the side of Cory Celeste with this massive spire where gravity doesn't work the way you might expect. And evil Harry Dredd is like, I don't like this. But the rest of them are kind of into it. And even the minstrel is like, I grew up in the mountains. This is fine. And uh, starts to feel a bit better after being horrified by the horrible battles with fish people and things. He's now trying to pull himself together a little bit and starts making some notes and deciding, well, I've been offered all these rubies. I should write this saga. I'll get it together. That's So, there's like a nice interlude. And we've got these two. I mean, it's, it's you know, classic A-B plot stuff. It's nice to have that sort of cut away when things get tense in one story, um, and which is usually the space story. Because, to be honest, the, the Silver Horde never really seems they in much the danger. danger. They are <laughs> the danger. Fine. They're fine. Mm. <laughs> Just walking up a mountain. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The gods are the ones who should be worried. We cut back to the spacecraft, the kite, and veterinarian ponder sort of work out what they're going to do. I like how they sort of set up how they're able to talk to them. Like, the wizards have built this device called an omniscope, which can allow you to see anywhere on the disc and potentially other times as well. And when they put it on the ship to take it with them so that they can follow the kite, it gets knocked over and breaks. And Ponder discovers that if you break an omniscope, whatever one part of the omniscope is looking at, the other part can see. So they can kind of use it to, you know, do two-way video communication between the two of them. Like Beauty and the Beast. And basically decide that, okay, what you're going to need to do, you're running out of fuel because you're too heavy and you're running out of air, redirect your flight, and Ponder kind of works out the maths for this. Sort of. And land on the moon, which you're going to pass, because the moon orbits around the disk, and it's quite small. It's veterinary's idea, though, isn't it? Like, Ponder does the math, but veterinary's like, can't they land there? Isn't there air? on? Because he points to something. Yeah. But then we find out it's the moon. I just want to talk about veterinary for a minute, because at the start of the book, he's very classic veterinary, and then there are parts of the book where he just seems slightly 
off. Like maybe he's a little bit more old school veterinary than the sort of more modern one we're used to. But he does always have these flashes of genius where he's like, I think this is what we need to do. You work out the details because that's not my area of expertise. But yeah, there were just a few moments where he felt a little bit, I can't quite put my finger on what it was, but there's just a few scenes where he seems a little bit. Did you get that or is that just Where does this me? sit in the chronology? Like how early on is this? Because is he old school veterinary with hints of future veterinary? Well, this is around in the order. It comes in between Thief of Time oh. and Nightwatch if we're talking about Ank Morpork set books. So it's kind of where we've been up to in the podcast. Mm, he seemed normal to um, me, but... um. Yeah, I didn't pick up anything, but I, the one thing I did think was odd was he was like, I'm arts educated, or they said he's arts educated. I'm like, is the Assassin's Guild arts education? Yeah, the Assassin Arts. Yeah. I mean, they would learn the classics and stuff, but I wouldn't say that's the arts, unless I'm doing the arts wrong. Well, it is sort of renowned as being this great school as well. Like, it's not just that you learn how to be an assassin, you also do all the classic, like, you learn the Discworld equivalent of Latin and classical mythology and comportment and all that kind of stuff, you know, mm. as well. Like a finishing school. Yeah, it's the ultimate finishing <laughs> yeah. school, if you think about it. So, yeah, I, I do like, though, that they sort of have that thing where he understands things that Ponder doesn't and vice versa. Like, particularly, and I think this comes up a little bit later, but the way that Leonard has labelled all the things in the ship, Ponder doesn't understand what any of them mean because he's used all these sort of fanciful names for them. But it's Vetinari who, because he has a knowledge of these classical mythological stories, is like, oh, yeah, Prince Haran's Tilla, that's a reference to this guy who found out a way to make his magic carpet fly safely while he was having a sleep. So they should turn that on. That's like an autopilot. And yeah, it just, I really liked it. Yeah, that. though he didn't say that. He um, just relied on the idea that his authoritative voice would make Rintwin do it rather than just explaining, hey, you should pull this one because it's the correct <laughs> thing to do. He had to do his like little power move in the background <laughs> while having a bit of a hissy fit quietly. But maybe he's just so confident that it would yes. work that he, he could have his hissy fit and eat it too. Yeah, and I think that was the sort of thing that felt to me a little bit off for Vetinari. Like, I'm like, you don't need to have your sort of like, well, I suppose if you think you know better than me. Like, he, I feel like he would have found some buttons to press for Ponder. Mm. Although there is also the moment where he kind of says that Ponder Stibbons is the one he doesn't yeah, understand. Yeah, I was going to say that because that explains why he might be a bit weird because he doesn't know mm. how to manage him or wrangle him. Yeah, so there's some interesting dynamics going on there. And it's true that Ponder and the patrician don't often talk. Like, usually when there's a story involving the patrician, the wizard who represents the other wizards is Red Cully, and the relationship between the two of them is pretty clear <laughs> how that works. But, yeah, Ponder's a bit of a, an odd duck, so to speak. But, yeah, they, they managed to land on the moon, uh, which no one has ever done. So, of course, Carrot plants a flag there. He plants the flag of Ankh-Morpork, but he says that he's claiming it on behalf of all the nations of the disc because he's Carrot. Um, so good on him. And they're able to replenish the air because there's air on the moon. But also mm. it's covered in these silvery yes. plants and moon dragons. Mm. Or OG oh, dragons. So yes, because this is where Leonard works out. Oh, this is, this is where the swamp dragons come from. This is their original form. And there's the two contrasting drawings. There's like a drawing mm. of a swamp dragon earlier on. And then there's a drawing of a moon dragon where they're basically the same, except the moon dragon is just much more confident. <laughs> yeah, because it's where it's like, yeah, it's designed to fit there and the others have just sort of badly adapted to the disc. Mm. And again, a great callback to an earlier book where the moon dragons flame out of the other end 
And Carrot realizes, oh, Errol, our old mascot and the dragon that was very important in Guards Guards, who did the same thing. It's like, oh, he wasn't sort of a weird mutant. He was like a throwback to the original Moon Dragons. Mm. So that was quite nice. Yeah. Elevating Errol retrospectively. Yeah. It was just, I liked it. Plus the horrifying idea that they lay their eggs by just dropping them onto the ground. Like they said, the eggs are curiously shaped, possibly to survive long drops to the ground. So it's just like you're flying along and just dropping eggs. But they eat the flag, isn't it? Like there's a thing like he's like, I got him yes. to take a picture, but then the flag was eaten and then they revealed the, yeah. the moon dragons. Which kind of ties in nicely with yes. his whole thing of like, oh, from here you can't see the borders between countries. Like So like the flag that would have been like theoretically for mm-hmm. everyone but was really for Ang Morpork is not there anymore. Mm. I also like that when he says that, Leonard DeQuirm's immediate response is like, hmm, well, we could probably do something about that. Is that important? We could solve that problem. <laughs> like, no, Leonard. Creating no, war and thing. solutions for violence all the time. Oh, oh mm. buddy. Anyway, this gives them an idea. It's like, okay, well, we can feed the dragons on the food here. We've got more fuel. We've got air. Uh, but also we can just wait till the moon rises and then launch off the moon and get straight to the middle of the world. And that'll give us a bit of a shortcut. So that's good. But then at the same time, the heroes are arriving at the gates of Dun Manifestin, the home of the gods. And they have decided because they didn't have a plan. Harry Dredd gives them a plan, which is just there's new gods all the time. Right. So let's just pretend we're new gods. And so they dress up as various stupid ideas for gods. <laughs> like Cohen puts one of the giant fish that they had to fight. He puts its head on his head. It's like, I'm a fish god. They dress one of them up as like a horrible looking Cupid style love god. Yeah, it's great. To be fair, all Cupids are horrible looking. All of them. <laughs> I mean, rough, but accurate. not inaccurate. I think God of Stuff, that was my favourite. Yeah. Just yeah. things, you know. Yeah. <laughs> things lying around. Uh, yeah. Muse of swearing. <laughs> oh, so good. But this is also where Harry's betrayal is revealed. And the heroes are all like, yeah, we know you betrayed us. Like, of course you did. <laughs> like, but you can't come with us now. You've got to wait out here. And also, we want you to wait outside and make sure the minstrel gets home safely. Um, take him with you. And the minstrel's like, no, I'm coming with you. Like, I want to, I want to see what happens. And then <laughs> I love his attitude. They're like, you could just make up the end of the story. He's like, no, I cannot make up the end of this story. I do not know how this is going to end. I have to come and see. But he feels quite confident he's going to survive because he's pretty sure the gods will want everyone to know what happens. And Harry's going to wait We have this little him. paragraph where a whole bunch of people get annihilated because of the, the moon story. And I'm like, mm, did they cause this directly or would have been happening somewhere else? Oh, just yeah. like one paragraph and it's like the, the intuitive people who have no imagination um, are eventually annihilated because by the nearby groups that read into the thing they see on the moon, which in turn are annihilated, blah, 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 blah. Um, I accidentally skipped over a bit where yeah. the gods know that they're going to dress up but decide to humor them because it'll be funny for them. Yeah, because the gods are jerks, right? It's yeah. all games. What else are they doing? Yeah. There's a great picture that goes along with that moment too, which is one of the new illustrations from the later editions, which is the picture of um, Rid Cully fishing over the side of the ship, which is not really described in the text. Like, that's a new detail. Mm. And there's all these weird fish that he's fished up flying on the deck of the ship. It's a great illustration, which it, it might be based on on something. And, in fact, there's an earlier one that I didn't mention when they're communicating with the kite and trying to figure out where they're going to go, how they're going to survive the librarian having stowed away. They've got this magic spell they're looking at, which sort of shows the trajectory around the disc. And there's a great painting, one of the new ones of that, which 
I am sure, like the cover of Nightwatch and the cover of the, the Science of Discworld is a parody of an existing painting, but I could not find out what it is. So, if anybody out there, if you listener, if you know, uh, please tell me because I could not find it documented anywhere. And I looked and I looked and I would love to know because it seems very familiar. I might post it on social media and, and see if anyone can identify it. I mean, probably, I mean, Paul Kidby knows. <laughs> Maybe he'll tell us if we tag him on Twitter or something. I don't know. Um, George, this might be a really basic question, but there's this picture um, on the older one on page 124 of Cohen where he's got his walking stick mm. and he's at the top of a thing and he's got his sword above him. And it's a thing I've always enjoyed where the picture extends beyond the background. That is there a name for that or is it because it's a technique that I always find really effective, but I can't put my finger on exactly why. Yeah, because I it's mean, just like the subject is so. Yeah. yeah, like it's, it's, I guess, can add a sort of element of depth and like action and forward movement. So like it feels like it's a bit more real and coming off the page because it's breaking away from, from that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's pro- I'm sure there is a technical name. As someone who hasn't studied art, I don't know it specifically. But in comics, I would definitely call it like panel breaking or breaking the fourth wall, depend like a wall. I know that's not specifically what it is because it's like breaking out of the panel, but or the, the illustration more than actually breaking a fourth wall with communicating with the reader. But yeah, just breaking. I think you can use that term. That's what I would use. This is me mm. and my very scientific words. <laughs> no, but it's about the feeling, right? Because it yeah. it really makes. I don't know. It, breaking is a great term for it because if you overuse it, it loses its effect. But when it is like deployed in a situation like this, you're like, oh, like this is like this person can't be contained within this image. It goes beyond mm. like what we can possibly like express. So I don't know. I, I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I dug it too. It's nice because it's also Cohen striking a pose, which he does in the text. Like he's, he's sort of striking a pose and saying a few words before he goes into the, the world, the gods in order for the bug you know, <laughs> to have something to draw from. Um, yeah. Talking about the kind of language he wants to hear in the saga. It's just, it's a great moment and it's nice there's a lot of things where the illustrations are directly drawing from the text and then there's other ones where they're really adding other stuff on and mm. this is sort of a good example of the the former. And it's a good, like, illustrations uh, can add that little extra character depth as well. Like, you know, no, would, would other characters break from the actual frame of the picture? Cohen would, obviously, but other characters wouldn't. Yes. And he's thinking beyond the story he's in to the story he wants to ultimately be remembered mm. as. I don't know if that's reading too hard, but, yeah. He's got his eye on the bigger picture constantly. Like, that's why he's yeah. doing this whole thing. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, on the moon, as the heroes are heading into the gods' home, they load up on the silvery plants that the moon dragons eat and use that to feed their dragons. But they don't realize it's much more potent than the crappy food that the dragons are used to eating on uh, the disc. And they rocket off at tremendous speed, way too fast, which knocks Leonard out. And this is when they identify the autopilot that Vetinari helps them with. And that gets them close to the gates when the librarian takes Leonard's flight goggles and puts them on and pilots his way into the home of the gods, which is this is a great illustration of the librarian putting the goggles on, grabbing the controls. He just looks great. He's so happy and symmetrical. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's also worth saying when they're on the moon, there's also some great stuff. This is where one of the new illustrations are, the one of Rincewind sort of doing the scream as he's like seeing the immensity of the elephants. But there's also a great picture of Leonard looking at the disc and going, wow, it's so great. I've got to try and paint this and not being able to capture it in time. They're going to crash through the gates. But just before they crash, the heroes are inside 
They're confronting the gods. They're all kind of a bit annoyed. The the minstrel <laughs> meets Nuggin and is like, you bastard, basically. <laughs> uh, gives him a surf, which uh, he well deserves, which is mm-hmm. great. Uh, the gods, like, pretend they don't know who they are until fate turns up. And fate we've met in previous Discworld books. He's just an asshole. <laughs> like, the other gods are kind of a little bit affable and they're, like, sort of play by the rules. But fate's like, no, I'm more important than mm. any of you. And he's just like, no, I'm not having this. And challenges Cohen to beat him if he's a god and rolls a dice and gets a six. And Cohen's like, oh, I've got to do better than this. And there's a great callback to earlier in the book where uh, the bard has been telling them stories on the way up the mountain, including about the Sortian knot, the Discord equivalent of the Gordian knot, and how a hero just sliced it in half with the sword. And uh, Cohen does this little sort of big wink <laughs> at the minstrel. It's like, oh, sounds like a knotty problem, how to roll more than a six on a six-sided dice. And in classic barbarian hero fashion, he throws the dice in the air and cuts it in half. So it falls down with two opposite faces, adding up to seven. I absolutely loved this bit mm. as a kid. It's great like stuff. it was, it was like, wow, so smart. Like it was like the most smart puzzle solving I'd ever come across at the time. Like, <laughs> oh, if only I could cut a dice in half, I could do this and re- like repeat it to impress my other fellow kids at school, which would not have impressed them, I'm sure. But like, yeah, I just remember it like really being super exciting and having known about um, Alexander the Great and, and things like that. So like connecting those things together just makes me feel, yeah, reading Terry Pratchett, when you, when you get some of the jokes, it's like the best feeling ever. It's like so lovely. And yeah. Is the lady kind of helping? Because there is a chance you do that and it's awesome. <laughs> they land broken side up, both sides, and it's terrible. <laughs> you roll yeah. nothing. You roll zero. Because like, you've got to get both of them landing the right way up. Like, he's all the skill with the sword, but, like, and then she comes out and does a thing. Also, illustration-wise, she's kind of like the lady version of fate. Like, they've got the same sort of hair. They've got, inter- like, she's got white eyes and he's got, like, those endless dark eyes. Like, they're kind of, like, opposing, but... I thought she was supposed to have green eyes. In the picture, though, that we see. I don't know, because yeah. based purely on the illustrations that we've got during these scenes, they're, to me, kind of drawn, mm. like, opposites. Totally. I can see that. Almost. Definitely. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think in the coloured, so this is another one of the new illustrations, there's a coloured version of the creation of Adam where Bind Io, the chief of the gods, is reaching out his finger to touch um, Cohen, but <laughs> instead of touching his finger back, Cohen's giving yeah. him the finger, which is great, which does appear in the regular version. It's a sort of a pencil drawing in the background. But I see what you mean, like the other drawing of the lady, yeah, she just has sort of just white eyes, but I'm pretty sure like in the novels mm. she described having green eyes and in the colour version of that, creation picture she does have mm. green eyes but they're very pale green so in yeah. this moment like they're on different sides i kind of feel like again don't know if i'm reading too much into it mm. but i mean luck did actually help him out in that scene i don't think skill can make that light mm. in both land the correct way up yeah i thought about this probably too much at the time because you know i spent a lot of time with dice uh, as a role-playing fan and a board gamer but it felt to me like because the side that wouldn't have the rounded edges would be slightly heavier because there's slightly more material on that side. I don't know if that's true. But also, it occurred to me, like, it's nice that it's a one and a six, but he could have cut it in half anyway, and as long as he cut it in half along one side in the middle, the opposite faces always add up to seven. Huh, that's cool. Yeah, I thought about it way too much. But but it's, but it's it was cool. It's just such a cool moment. And it's another thing, like, so many things when you dig into it in any Pratchett book are mm-hmm. drawn from real-world mythology or stories. 
And there is, a, I think it's a Norse myth of a king doing much the same thing, but he doesn't cut it in half. And there's a there's even a reference to it, I think, in an earlier book. I think it's in the Science of Discworld, if I remember rightly, where they recount that story and then they go, I wonder if the guy throwing the dice in the air had a big axe in his hand at the time. <laughs> Uh, because it, it's supposed to just have fallen in half by itself. It's cool. There's a lot of that sort of stuff in there. Mm. Maybe it's just full of butter, and that's why that side fell down. <laughs> that would make sense. That makes sense. <laughs> but, you know, this cheating of fate pisses fate off, as you might expect, but that's the point where the gods are like, okay, look, we know who you are. We know you know you're not really uh, other gods. And that's when the lady turns up and is like, no, you're my champions. But they're not impressed by this. They're like, oh, yeah, what about old Vincent? Was he your champion? Like, you just let us all grow old. This is all just a joke to you. And this is where everything comes to a head. And Cohen at one point says, hey, press the thing into the the explosive that we Mm. brought with us. And Truckle does that. And the gods are like, whatever, an explosion. But we don't know that yet. Oh, we don't, yeah, we, th- he's done it, but we, we don't find out he has actually done it. But the gods are like, whatever, you know, blow us up. We're gods. We don't care about a bit of an explosion. And this is my favorite bit of Cohen in the book. He is clever enough to be like, yeah, sure. But the whole disc is going to see a massive explosion at the home of the gods. You don't think that might make them think, hey, something bad's happened to the gods and doubt their belief in you mm. a little bit. And even if that doesn't hurt you, someone else is going to go, well, if these guys could get up there and blow them up a bit, maybe we could go up there and blow them up even a bit more. Like, and I just thought that was great that he'd actually thought that far ahead and he understood what he was doing. And it wasn't just, I'm going to take some explosives and blow them up. Mm. I just, that was a really nice touch that he knew that. Do you think he knew that? Or do you think he learned along the way through his relationship with the bard? <laughs> I think he knew that, but I like to think that they helped each other grow. But I think Cohen was oh, Cohen yeah. the whole way through and the bard is the only one who did any growing. For sure. But I'd like it to be the other way. Yeah. I think Cohen definitely does learn a lot from mm. the, the minstrel. But I think he knew this all along. I think he had thought about it enough. Even despite Harry Dredd being like, oh, you never have a plan. You just want to rush in there. <laughs> I think he had more of a plan than uh, he was given credit for. Uh, but as this uh, moment gets very tense, as the gods are like, hmm, maybe this isn't a good thing for us, the kite crashes in, destroying the gates to Dun Manifested, and Rincewind and Carrot are like, come on, don't do this. This is going to destroy the whole world. And Colin's like, so what? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> it's not until the minstrel points out that if they destroy the world, then there'll be no one to remember them, that Colin's like, oh, maybe I do care. <laughs> Which was a bit rough, I thought. It's very self-serving, of God. But I guess that is his whole motivation at this point. But barbarians have to be self-serving. Mm, that's fair. Because they say that like, you can't think about the monster being potentially the last one of its kind. You just hack its head off. you got to just be like, me survive in this instant. And if me survive is no longer the goal, you change that into my survival being memory. So mm. like, it's the same motivation, just shunt it along. Totally. That makes sense. Yeah, 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 for sure. But having convinced them that this is not a good idea, they instantly are like, okay, let's go. And they grab Hamish's wheelchair and the explosive and they all just trundle off the edge of the mountain. Mm. Though we have to quickly say, like, because it comes back to the title, it's them versus Carrot who tries Mm. to arrest them. And it comes back to the code, which has been peppered throughout the whole thing, that they live by this code of like what heroes do, what evil lords do. And that's just something that's been emphasized throughout that that's what they live by. And they slowly realize... 
this is one guy who only makes $43 a month sending up to seven of them. So the ske- are, the, are <laughs> yeah, we the baddies? <laughs> yes, it's there. Are we the baddies moment? <laughs> the illustration reflects that as well on the page. For the old edition, it's 142 and 143, and you've got the horde and carrot either side, and it's, mm. yeah, it's a really lovely addition to the text. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Carrot's an interesting, in this book, he's an interesting character. And that, you know, I guess it's much the same as in a lot of the watch books where he's kind of always there. He's mostly quite quiet, but then he has those one or two moments where like the real carrotiness comes out, including like when Rincewind is talking about how he's fallen off the edge of the disc before. And Carrot's like, oh, what did you see? He's like, oh, you know, nothing really. I was just too busy having my life flash before my eyes. And Carrot's like, hmm, well, maybe this time we'll see something more interesting. <laughs> and and Rincewind has this moment of, did you mean that to be as mean as it was? Or are you in a- I can't figure- And it's just that sort of like, who is he? How deep does he go? We don't know. And we'll never find out because he's so guarded. But yeah, he's just, his big moments in this book are like those kind of standout things. And the rest of the time, he just sort of fades in the background a little bit, which is perfect carrot. But yes, they trundle off the edge Mm. and fall pretty much all the way down the spire to hit one of the smaller mountains below, which then explodes and is reduced to slag. Like this is some serious magical explosive. Everyone's still a bit like, maybe they survived. We didn't see their bodies. But but the the more rational characters are like, did you see the size of that explosion that they were in the middle of? Like, no, they did not survive. There could have been some soft birds flying past, you know? It's very... (laughs) Yeah, like maybe the... Yeah. No. Some really thick snow. But the gods are kind of jerks about this as well, and they grudgingly kind of are like, do you want anything? I guess we could give you something. And Kara's like, No. <laughs> don't, I don't want anything. Just let us fix our ship and go home. Mm-hmm. Rincewind asks them for a balloon, a callback to <laughs> a disappointing birthday he's mentioned earlier in the book. Yeah. Which, I am fine. Which is delightful. <laughs> like we just, we never hear much about Rincewind's childhood except for how grim it was. I think there's a reason he ended up at the university. He seems to have been shoved in there by default almost. Mm. But yeah, and then the the librarian gets a whole bunch of library supplies mm. and a balloon. Red balloon. <laughs> that was a great picture of him yeah. just loving his red balloon, and I like that. And that's the kind of climax of the book. But then we, down at the base of the mountain, Venna the Ravenhead, who did not go with the other heroes into the home of the gods, has gone back down. Mrs. McGarry. Oh, Mrs. McGarry, <laughs> yes, sorry. She is waiting for the Valkyries to turn up to come and take the Horde away, but she's disguised herself as one of them. <laughs> And helps them ambush the Valkyries and steal all their horses. Are they dead? And this is, like, here's a question. So, we had Michael Williams on the show a long time ago now. This was back when we discussed Hogfather. I think it's about episode number 26. If you want to look it up, I'll put a link in the episode notes. But he was interviewing Terry Pratchett on stage and was like, why did you never kill any of your characters off? Like, not even Cohen, who is really old. And Pratchett sort of turned to him and goes, but I did kill Cohen off. And now that I've reread this book, I'm like, but did you, though? Did you? Because this reminded me really strongly of the ending of Johnny and the Dead, Mm. where those characters are very definitely dead, but they sort of construct themselves metaphysical spacecraft and go off to explore the universe. And Cohen here is, and the Horde, 
I'm like, aren't you dead? And they're like, well, we don't feel dead and we don't think anyone else's opinion really matters. So, we're going to steal these horses and we're going to go off to adventures. Again, because of something the minstrel told them about an ancient conqueror who got to the edge of the world, had conquered as much of it as he could and saw that there were all these other worlds he couldn't get to and wept. He's like, but I want to conquer everything and I can't. <laughs> and they're like, well, what, a, what an idiot. But also, yeah, other worlds. Okay. So, there's this question, are they really dead or not? Hmm. It depends on what you mean by dead. Like their bodies are dead, but are they mm, dead? They still continue on. What is death? Yeah. Yes, we can solve <laughs> yeah. that now. Even though like, the definition of death is different, like in different places, it's just, you know. I did like that they made them the Valkyries from the opera. Yeah. Because they, they specify that they're like soprano, mezzo-soprano, because there's like famously from the yeah. ring cycle, the Valkyrie. Um, <laughs> this doesn't happen in that. Yes. But <laughs> there's some horse borrowing there. Yeah. But it is different to the other times that characters die. Death does turn up after the Valkyries have been and gone for a while and talks to Vina the Ravenhead and she's like, are they dead? And he's like, I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't reveal any mysteries. Mm. And it's one of the few times he talks to someone who's not dead. But he's like, yeah, no, I can't. There's, it's all because of quantum. And he's he's been bamboozled earlier on where he can't tell if the disc is going to die or not, like if a Chewin's going to die. He's looking at his giant lifetimer, which is one of the other new illustrations in the later edition, and he's trying to understand quantum theory, and so he and Albert are putting a kitten in a box. <laughs> it's very silly, but he's just not sure. Like, normally he can tell, but this is uh, one of those rare situations where he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. That's bonkers, because it's one of the new illustrations, which I've subsequently looked at, but... It was one that I felt I had seen because it was described so well already. So I was like, what do you mean new illustration? I saw that in my book. But I was like, no, I didn't do that in my book. I saw that in my brain. <laughs> well, I think because we're so used to the Kidby version of all the characters, I think often that is the, the sort of dominant image of them that we have in our brain, um, as you say, we, which we don't with the Kirby versions, I think, because his character designs are not that distinctive. Like they're all they're all lumpy, uh, as we have said before on this podcast, but you don't look at the cover of something like Guards, Guards and go, oh, that's Vimes and that's Con Like, you can tell which one's which, but you don't think about the character that way because they're not drawn in a in a caricature. They're kind of mm. drawn in a very weird style. I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but I feel like you don't take the Josh Kirby version of the character and put that in your brain as that's what they look like. I definitely don't. It, they horrify me, so I try to block them out as much as possible. <laughs> Oh, it's dropping just lumps of themselves so everywhere small. as they walk. Yeah, it's, it's like dumb. early Mickey Mouse animation. It gives me that same sort of unsettling feeling when I look at them. And it's so sad because, you know, I love the book so much. And then I feel all of the covers and I'm like, oh, I just can't deal with it. Yeah. I just don't look too hard at them. I'm just like, we're opening it and then we don't have to look at it again. Yeah. It's interesting. I think there are people who sort of came across the books at a certain age who just sort of went, all right. We have a kind of a bit more of a nostalgic feeling about those covers, but I, I think I've lost that, like reading the books now and getting into them and looking at all the other ways the covers can be drawn. I'm very interested in alternate ideas for that. The like, hardcover ones with the really graphic designy emboss sort of stuff. Oh, I love those, but there's the new, new ones. So to go along with the new audiobooks starting in late Ooh. April, they've just started releasing new editions of all the paperbacks of the books. Mm -hmm. They're all going to have a similar design. But also each sub-series has like a unifying colour scheme. So the witches' covers all kind of look a bit similar and- Hard to prove. 
we've only seen some of them so far, and they are designed by a new designer, but they're riffing on yeah. Paul Kidby's this one character designs. We haven't seen any of them except for the witches ones and small gods so far. So it'll be interesting to see what the rest of them are like. Can I just add? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm excited about talking about book covers. I do like Kirby, the design that goes with Kirby's illustration. I feel like they're, that's a good book design, like the two, the bold colour at top and bottom with the, for the hardcover specifically, um, with mm. the wraparound element of the, his illustration. Mm. I think design-wise, excellent design, whereas the Kidby ones, design-wise is much less um, like he, he's still got something going for it, but it's, it's more like, oh, this is a great illustration, but it's not necessarily the best design. Like I, it's not a nostalgia thing for me. Like I look at them and I go, these are great illustrations. So I, I enjoy that. Mm. But like the, when I, if I was drawing a Terry Pratchett book, like from memory as a cartoon, I would draw the Kirby ones because the design is more distinctive and nostalgia mm. filling. So I, like, I totally mm. get the nostalgia thing for that as well. And they were the first ones that I would have seen and, um, had when I was younger too. So like, I, yeah, I totally get it. They still horrify me. <laughs> That's fair. Leaving aside the question of whether they're dead or not. I mean, I think he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. I think they're fairly clearly dead, but at the same time, they don't go to where they're supposed to go when they're dead. Um, and they don't seem to leave bodies behind either. So they it's do. very, it's implied uncertain. they leave a body because like there's a bit of a sandal poking out of a, out of the snow. And to me, that because they said that. Is it just the sandal or is there a foot in it? When you come first come to the scene, they say that you can see kind of like where something is smashed really hard into the snow and gone really deep down and the snowdrift mm. is covering it. So to me, it implies they're all deeply under there. And that kind of comes back to the thing with the rubies mm-hmm. lying in the snow later. Like by the time that the weather has mm. changed, their bodies might be gone. But in snow, it should be preserved. So I'm not quite sure. But my interpretation of that was their bodies are there. There's a bit of a sandal that you can see, but that's going to be covered up but some version or manifestation of them continues on, like, as they are. That's how I read it, based purely on the sandal poking out and the, the snowdrift thing. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, they surely they should have been vaporised in that explosion, though. It sounds pretty extreme. It melted half a mountain. Maybe they did. Um, like maybe they smashed in and then... Maybe. Like, I don't know. But look, like I say, it's very Johnny the Dead going off in their flight of the imagination to see other worlds. But along the way, they stop off at the place which is on no map, where Fingers Mazda has been imprisoned on a rock having his liver eaten by an eagle every day in much the same way as Prometheus, break his chains and give him a sword. Mm. And he's just waiting for the eagle to turn up, which I thought was very nice. Although then presumably he's going to escape and who knows what he's going to get up to. We Again, we never find out. Interesting idea for a story, but not part of this one and not one that Project wanted to tell because it's not That's fair enough. clear who is the last hero in this. Like the titular last hero is it Carrot? Is mm. it Cohen? Is it potentially Mazda? The first hero is also the last hero. Is it all of them? Like, is there no such thing? Is it something that goes on? Like, it's a, it's a good title. Sometimes the title is just like a fun, punchy like thing. But this one, I think it's good because it raises questions. Mm. I kind of go with the it's Cohen because he's sort of the last hero in the way that he thinks of heroes being. And there's not any more after him. Whereas Carrot represents what there is instead, who is what we would think of as a more modern sort of hero, but at the same time is not really the same kind of character. And a bit more, and, and kind of more ruthless, you know? Like if you remember the end of Men at Arms, like he's the one who kills you without saying a word because it's the right thing to do. And that's what he does to Dr. Cruz's. It's full on. 
But great. But then, like, if he and all of his silver horde all die at the same time, and they are all heroes, like it's lost hero singular, not last hero. So it's, I still think it's very open to interpretation. I do agree. Like, Carrot is absolutely mm. someone who would block up the tunnel and not let the Dark Lord escape. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gods are not happy with Leonard Dequirm building a flying machine that can go around without magic and possibly visit the home of the gods. So they decide to punish him by giving him a task that he will find very difficult, which is he has to paint the entire ceiling of the Temple of Small Gods in Ankh-Morpork. Like one of the gods suggested, like just a kind of nice <laughs> blue. Um, whereas he's actually really keen mm. for the task. He's like sketching already and thinking through. Yeah, things, yeah. But and then three weeks later, we cut to the priests coming to Vetinari to say, "You got to come and see this." And he's like, "Oh, really? How's it going?" He's like, "He's finished it." <laughs> He's finished it. And he's like built a flying machine and like a spray paint machine. And he's done the whole thing in three weeks, but he's loved it because he's, he's so enamored by the view of the disc from space that he wants to paint it. Uh, and so now he has. And yeah, uh, I thought that was a great way to end the mm. book. And that illustration is great. That last page, which is, you know, um, him doing that. Um, and uh, it's like a pencil drawing, but it's, he's, yeah. And all of the onlookers. As he's in his Leonardo da Vinci helicoptery flying machine. There's questions raised by this last illustration, which is that it in itself is depicted as an illustration. It has the paintbrushes <laughs> on it still. There's a coffee ring on there, and Rincewind is the only one with any color. Like everything else is bright golds and yellows, but you can see a little bit of red. And he's looking towards towards us. So I don't quite know what to take away from that. Like, is this? Yeah. Rincewind's like who's memory or is it like Leonard like in his notebooks like who whose perspective is this like whose illustration of the situation is it yeah interesting I do like how he's holding the librarian's mm, hand right that's cute and he still has the uh, stick to everything flying yeah. pen stuck to his back it's, it's, it's a combination of Teflon and Velcro <laughs> That Leonard's like, well, things float around. If we want to cook food, we can't have the frying pan floating around. So I've made the back of the frying pan so that it will stick to anything. <laughs> so funny. We should talk about the end of the saga, like the bard's like final thing. Mm. Um, how he he and um, Harry have made an agreement. Like you, can't, like he's like, I don't have the code, so you can't try and screw me over because I will like not <laughs> abide by honor. Um, and then I'll kill you. Yeah. And then they, um, it has him listening to the song, which is different to what they expected, but it's very, mo he's pulled off something amazing basically. But the thing that struck me was the full page illustration where it's just him mm. against the moon with his new mm. instrument. And it's, he's changed so much and it's great. Yeah. The liar that he's made himself partly out of a skull he found on the way. It reminds me of a, a lot of things, but it reminds me kind of of, uh, this is spinal tap where when you see the origins of the Spinal Tap, the group, they're like a hippie group. And one of their early singles is like, listen to the flower people. And then they become a heavy metal band. And this is, he's gone through this same evolution of style. Like he started out as like a, you know, a minstrel singing sort of songs about love. And now he's like a heavy metal guy writing Led Zeppelin style saga music. That's how I imagine it anyway, particularly based on the picture. Yeah, and it just shows how embedded he is in with the story, like he and it, like, cause like he never gets a name because the story is more important, but like all the things he's wearing and the instrument he's playing are all drawn from this thing he's singing about, which is mm. striking. I also like the detail that, you know, he sings it and Harry's kind of like speechless. It's like, that's amazing. And he goes, yeah, I think the next version will be 
even better. And Harry's like, you're going to make it better than that? And it's just, it's, it's a kind of what every artist wants the experience of people experiencing their work to be, right? <laughs> it's like, that's so amazing. And you're like, oh, but it's not even finished yet. They're like, but it's so good. You mean you're going to improve on this? Uh, yeah, it was, that was delightful. But that kind of brings us through the whole story. There's so many little details. Before we get into people's questions, what are the things that people want to pull out that we have skipped over as we've gone through the plot? Because there's so many little bits, but what are some of our favourites? I like some of the stuff about legacy and how they have that brief chat about, oh, you know, children are going to be your legacy. And Cohen's like, all right, name one of your great granddads. And he's like, oh, well, okay, fine. (laughs) Yeah. Cheeky. I think I quite enjoyed in general and I think because of the illustrated format and the big illustrated format in particular, like the sense of enormity of the universe and just a Pratchett writing about all of that sort of stuff pairing with the illustration and there's like one bit where Rincewind's trying to be sarcastic to Carrot, which obviously is never going to work anyway, but uh, Rincewind began... But sarcasm did not carry very well out here. The universe diluted it. The huge black solemn eyes in the sky withered it. And it's just like, oh, yeah. I don't know. It just, and then you've got, before that, you've got this beautiful, in the old edition on page 118 and 119, you've got like this look of them standing on the moon looking at one of the elephants. And it's just, ah, the sense of scale of them being so tiny to the giant elephant, like just that sense of scale of the disc and how, much bigger it is uh, than we ever thought, even though you know it. Like, yeah, it's one of those things that your brain kind of knows it logically but then can't handle it, at least for me. <laughs> um, it's really nice. And there's a yeah. kind of beautiful parallel between the two plot points. You've got the men flying into space and realising how small they are in this grand scheme of things, and then you've also got the old men at the end of their lives worried that they're small and they're going to be forgotten and that it would have been for nothing and trying to be big in a world where yeah. you can be nothing but small. It's just, just kind of like a beautiful symmetry. Totally. There's a quote that I really enjoyed from near the end after the Prometheus slash Mazda um, liberation bit, but after that is... It is in the nature of things that those who save the world from certain destruction often don't get hugely rewarded because since a certain destruction does not take place, people are uncertain how certain it may have been and are therefore somewhat tight when it comes to handing out anything more substantial than praise. I feel like that's just so applicable across so many things and it's just a beautiful phrasing of that. Yeah, like depressingly so in the way we've seen some people's reaction to the last couple of years. Yes. Um, Yeah. Let's let's not get too depressed about that. Yeah. I really liked a lot of the little details in the illustrations. Like, for example, there's the page of drawings of both theoretical and observed <laughs> creatures that might exist in the space around the disc world. And there's a note because Rincewind offhandedly says, oh, yeah, there could be some sort of, you know, horrible creature that could bore into the side of the ship and get inside when they're trying to figure out why they're so heavy. And he draws it and it's like a space squid with a like an auger sticking out of its mouth that could drill into the ship. And that it's got a um, a great little aliens reference because it's talking about if such a creature invades the ship, it's vital the crew split up in order to search for it. <laughs> so don't do that. But then it says... Nucleus situm ex orbita unus certus maximus, which is more or less Latin for <laughs> nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure, <laughs> which is a great little thing that only appears in the illustration. And there's so many little things like that. 
and stuff like, you know, when you see the illustration of the cockpit, there's a sign on the wall that says no handball playing allowed, which is something that one of the early astronauts put into one of the early spacecraft in the NASA space program. And the way that some of the devices are labeled, one of them is labeled Troba, which is backwards for abort, which is the mm. device that if you pull it, the wings fall off. Like it's Stuff like that is just, there's so much thought and care. And brakes backwards too. Yeah, brakes is backwards as well. Yeah, exactly. And I just, oh, I love all of that stuff. Do you think that, because this book is very footnotes light, that Mm. the pictures have taken over the footnotes, like, job in this particular book? Like, they've become that Mm. extra snazzy bits of fun but in sometimes a visual way but obviously with particularly the more leonardo da vinci style note ones i would say is more the those little extra fun footnotes where you can add those extra bits that you can get something out of absolutely yeah i hadn't yeah i think there's an element of that i mean there's several novels around this time that don't have that many footnotes in them already but i think yeah they've really stepped up I would have loved to see a picture of the Republican bees. Like, that's an early footnote, like one of the few ones where they sit around voting for more honey. That's great. I also like that Rincewind gets the version of the one small step, one giant leap, because he's, like, telling the librarian to be careful with how he's walking. But um, I, is this a Peter – like, is Second Star to the Left and Straight On Till Morning a Peter Pan reference? Because whatever it's referencing, yes. I just do love the drive-by murder of a famous line. Because <laughs> he's like – I think that may very probably be the stupidest piece of astro navigation <laughs> ever suggested. Yeah, it's probably also a reference to Star Trek VI, basically. There's so many. We can't... I mean, yeah. if you want to find out more about the references in the book, please, there's lots of great places to look this up. There's a small number of them in the annotated Pratchett file. There's some more on the uh, L-Space wiki. There's another um, wiki, which is on fandom.com for the Discworld. That's got some more in it. The TV Tropes page for this book has got a bunch of cool references in it as well that aren't in other places. So, yeah, there's so many. We couldn't cover them all, but there's so much fun, all of them. We should get into some questions. We've got some great questions about this book. Yeah, I think otherwise <laughs> we're just going to go through it illustration by illustration, pulling out everything because yeah. it's... Yeah, yeah. One of those kind of guys. Do or well, actually though, do we before we get onto other people's questions though? Do you have a favorite illustration from the book? They're all great, but is there one that really like? Oh, this is mm-hmm. if I could have one framed on my wall, I want this one. It's a tricky question because I feel like ones that I would have framed versus ones that inspire me are very different. So, like quite early on, there's one of the mm-hmm. dead disc, and that's like obviously very sad, but it's like wow. This is very striking, like, and particularly in contrast to the not dead disc. And it's just, uh, mm. a lot of those big spreads, they're the ones that if I was going to frame something, I would frame those because they're beautiful pieces of illustration. But I think I mentioned like the dragons earlier, the dragons illustration and of all the different swamp dragons and, you know, it, just all the, le- uh, Leonard, um, sketches and things like that. Those little ones, which wouldn't necessarily look great framed, but they looking, looking at them now, from when I would have first read them, I can see how much they've influenced how I write and draw comics now. Like, like I love diagrammatic illustrations in stories and how they can add to a story and things like that. So, that, so like, ones that are, are my favourite because they've influenced me versus ones that are my favourite that I would never try and draw like at all, but I just love because they're beautiful pieces of art. So I, I don't have a favourite because it's too... It's too hard. It's a, yeah. I, hate, I hate the favourite questions because I'm, I'm a very bad decision maker. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can relate. 
But I, I agree that the ones that add little extra stuff, I really enjoy. Some of the ones from the extra illustrations, I love the map of the route that they're taking. Uh, I love the one of uh, Rid Kelly fishing the weird fish out of the sea. Because in the background of that, you can see the moon and the kite blasting off the moon that everyone can see across the disc. You know, there's some nice little details there. There's a picture in a corner, which is just Ponder with a pen in his mouth with a T-shirt yeah. on that says, actually, I am a rocket wizard, which is not mentioned in the text, but then becomes something that is like part of his identity. And he's drawn that way a lot now. Yeah. And just an aside with the dragons, uh, I looked up some of Paul Kidby's other artworks. Mm. And he loves that style of dragon. He's He's got these illustrations of gnomes with uh, their sort of tiny pet dragons that are quite big for the gnome, but they're obviously quite small by human standards. And they look a lot like swamp dragons. So I think he's he just loves drawing yeah. cool dragons. <laughs> and who doesn't? If I, if I was good at drawing dragons, I'd draw them all the time. Did you have a favourite, Liz? Um, I agree with George that it's complicated because, like, favourites can fall into different categories for different reasons. The one that stuck with me the most was also the dead disc because it showed the stakes in a way that isn't normally possible to show in one of these books. I would also like to have the Swamp Dragons on my wall because that's just one that you can get something new from every time you look at it. I do really enjoy digging into the early picture on the old version, page 17 of Done Manifestin, because my first time through, I didn't realize exactly what was making it up. I was just like, oh, this is a cool thing. But it's so many famous landmarks and buildings and icons just lumped into something that does actually work really well together. So it's one that you can keep looking at and trying to figure something, like figure out where, where they're all from or and how they're fitting together mm. so nicely. Yeah, that is cool. I hadn't looked at it in much detail until you just mentioned it now, and I can see there's Greco-Roman columns at the entrance, and then you've got pyramids and obelisks and Easter Island-style mm. heads. and Casual Chichen Itza kind of guy, but not, not really. Yeah, and domed temples and, yeah, all kinds of stuff. It's great. That's yeah. really cool. And yeah. I like there's also there's that little shack out the back. Mm with it, just one tree, and I, I'm sure that's a reference and I'm not going to remember what it is. I was just about to ask if you knew. <laughs> Show notes. Yeah. feels like mm. it feels very familiar. It's a, it's a cool little detail I hadn't noticed before. Mm. Right? So I don't know what that is, but that's, that's cool and now I want to find out. <laughs> I'm going to have to find out what that is. Uh, but we should get into some questions or we're going to run out of time. So we talked about the minstrel. Let's go with the first question, which is from Damien Smith on Twitter, which was, was the saga supposed to be based on a round world equivalent and how did you imagine it sounding? And we did get a follow-up from Steve Lee, frequent commenter. Nice to hear from you, Steve, who suspected that it might have some reference to the man in the moon with an E, which is definitely an influence on the story. This is an early story about people flying to the moon. It's referenced in Serrano de Bergerac. Um, and also kind of echoed in some of the tales of Baron Munchausen, particularly Terry Gilliam film version. When you see there's a picture in the book where they're imagining what Leonard's flying machine might be like, and it's being drawn like a chariot with flying dragons, It's that's a bit like The Man in the Moon, because I think it's swans or something in, in the story. So I think there's part of that, but I don't think that's what the saga is really like or about. So did you have any thoughts about what it sounded like? I've already kind of said I think it's like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> You know, immigrant song style, I hope. What do you think? I put up all my mental walls to stop trying to imagine what it would sound like because I was like, it's going to be one of those things where there's a reason it's not depicted. It's so that it's up to us or like, it's kind of like the greatest song in the world tribute. Like you can't, (laughs) 
quite it's just so oh. unusual and different and good that you can't create it otherwise it would be there in the book so i was kind of like, i'm not gonna try i give up i'm just gonna lie down in the grass and just just not try now you've said that though i really want to know she's to write a version of it yeah uh, it work with the illustrations and everything it'd just be so good it's so but, yeah. good what do you think george did you have any thoughts I think, like, my natural inclination was to, like, because I I studied classical music at uni, uh, so my inclination was very much, like, thinking of those sort of more, probably more ballady than sagary, but, like, story songs, like, things you'd go to the pub and sing and, like, sing with your mates, that kind of thing. Like, definitely, like, there was quaffing happening. It's going to have some, like, (laughs) uh, that that element to it, and it was the kind of thing that, like, changes so like even though the bard has like the perfect version that he's got once that someone else hears it i feel like maybe it's the kind of thing that other people take and do covers of and kind of mess up a bit but it's in yeah like it goes around so people can hear it and yeah definitely a pub song is kind of the vibe i felt but like in that older i don't want to say looty because it's not obviously the loot's gone but like yeah he got that like twangy string vibe no one's really quite Mm. sure if they're playing it right the the notes are a bit wacky they change every time but everyone's having a great time and then they don't remember it the next day maybe Mm. like they they drank too much that night that they can't Mm. remember it (laughs) (laughs) well now i'm imagining someone doing immigrant song in that style which i'm sure has been done because there's a whole movement and you can find heaps of videos with songs like this uh on youtube but it's called bardcore where people take modern yeah. songs and they try and play them in that kind of medieval style. Uh, I'm sure there's one of immigrant song. Now that's what it sounds like in my head. I'm going to have to look this up. It's like a TikTok sea shanty where they keep like adding on <laughs> other bits. <laughs> yes. That's the modern equivalent. That's great. Now we, to go back to the art from it, we got a question from Fiona Margalotta on Discord who asked, what's your favourite classical art reference? For example, there's the Bay Tapestry we mentioned in the start. There's the Athenian black figure style you'd find on Greek uh, and uh, pre-Roman Italian ceramics. There's the Da Vinci-esque style of Leonard de Quirm with the Mona Og and the Vitruvian Rincewind and all of the notebook sketches. And Fiona did say that her favourite is the beautiful pen to write upside down during Surgeons in the Void. Uh, which is, of course, a reference to the myth that NASA spent millions of dollars making a space pen mm. while the Russians mm. used pencils, which is not true. Mm. Not true. Pencils are dangerous. They can start fires. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what was, did you have a favorite bit of art that referenced something else, whether that was an art style or a story from the real world? I mm. can't pull one out. I did enjoy Vitruvian Rincewind because of like the, the words being that he was just throwing up a lot because yeah. he's actually like in that literal yes. thing spinning around and there's just like a green stain moving up it. So like that was kind of like a nice <laughs> subversion of quite a serious picture. Mm. That was definitely my favorite as a, like, again, as a kid, it's that feeling of like, I can recognize this thing that's from the real world, but look at this magical twist. And it's, yeah, it's like being allowed into a secret club of knowledge. It's such a good feeling. So from that, the feeling it gave me, that was definitely my favorite. But I hadn't noticed the green until we were just going through the plot earlier in, for the podcast. And I was like, oh, that's disgusting. Excellent. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's he been eating that's so bright yeah. green as well? Yeah. I, well, maybe it's paint. He accidentally ate some paint. Uh, although that's yeah. afterwards. That's later. We didn't mention that, but they, they get the tubes of space food that they have mixed up with Leonard's paints that he's brought with them, <laughs> which leads to many hilarious things. Um, I really like the mission patch 
So this is uh, something they do traditionally for NASA missions, space missions. They make a patch, which is like a circular cloth patch embroidered with the logo of the mission and the name of the mission, um, which is always a slight modification of the sort of NASA spaceship with the sort of orbit thing going around it. A little bit like the Lego space theme logo, <laughs> which I'm also a big fan of. But it's got a Tuan and the elephants and it's got the ship sort of flying around it, although the ship on the patch does not look much like the <laughs> ship that they actually fly in. And it has a, a motto that Rincewind made up, which is Morichuri Nolomus Mori, which is we who are about to die don't want to, <laughs> which he keeps secret from Carrot, who can only work out the first half because Carrot's the one creating the patch. And then later on, Vetinari translates it and is like sort of like slightly disapproving, but also, well, yeah, we you are saving the world from death. So this is an appropriate motto, I guess. I really like that. I think that's probably my favourite one, but they're all so good. I did also like the astronaut portrait. Like, that one was very satisfying for me. Mm. Like, I know it's not necessarily a classical yep. piece of art, but, like, it just feels, I don't know, it's like, yes, mm. I would watch these on TV. I'd watch these astronauts go into space and on TV and I'd follow their their path with great interest. It looks so much like the actual yeah. photos of NASA astronauts yeah. from the 60s and the 70s. It's so good. I like the one that's in the background of this one, and I think is in the new one, the Sistine Chapel reference where Cohen's flipping off the gods. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I can't remember where I read it recently or saw something. It's like the whole thing where like the gods are actually contained within a brain. Like when you step back, like the, the oh. shape that they're in is like the human mind. What? Oh, wow. I did not pick oh, that up. If you look at the picture, um, yeah, so the gods are actually, ah. like it's a brain. And that's sort of the red curtain or it looks, thing that's. Yeah. I guess the shape of a brain. Cool. That is very I feel like cool. That, that's a great yeah. picture. And that also needs to be a new heist themed movie, I feel, in the style of National <laughs> Treasure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I love that picture too because I really like being a slightly classical mythology nerd as a kid. I love mythology and the mashup that Pratchett does with all the different mythologies. I mean, it's largely Norse and sort of Greek mythology, but he throws in a bit of Egyptian stuff as well and, and other things. But just his remix of those characters, like blind eye being blind in his face, but having all these eyes floating around him. It's, it's just a great kind of mythic feel. It feels like it should be a part of our real mythology but it's a unique creation for the disc world. And you're like, this is great. And seeing pictures of them is awesome. I really love all those pictures too. I feel like um, I didn't grow up in a particularly religious household at all, but I always liked the idea of Pratchett's gods much more than any other kind of god that I'd been told about. Like in any in any way, I was like, yeah, well, why can't can I just have these gods? Like these, these guys are pretty great. They're ridiculous and more. they feel more realistic and like people. Yeah. Which is, I mean, what they used to be like, you know, like they – they were the exploits of the gods were like the soap operas of their day. <laughs> you know, they're just a bunch of people being jerks to each other and having affairs and just great stuff. Rin Betancourt on Facebook asked If given an opportunity to travel with any of the Discworld characters, who would you want to travel with? And obviously, in this book, we get to travel with Carrot and Rincewind and Leonard to Quirm. But who would you want to travel with? It's a tough question because, like, if you travel with Rincewind, he knows all the languages, but you will get into strife. You will not have a nice time. But you also get out of the strife. <laughs> not necessarily. Does everyone survive who goes along with him? Like, he does. I was like, thinking about this just last night because I was thinking about this question. Because like, initially I was like, I guess Rincewind, but also no. Mm. Veterinary, you would have an interesting trip where you would see things that you would not otherwise mm-hmm. get to see and also be very safe. Also, sweeper, was, a good yeah, option if you want to travel. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
I also thought maybe Lady Sybil would be yeah. all right because you've got some good connections wherever you go. Oh. And I feel like she's just a fun lady. She's She's got stuff going on. Mm. She's, yeah. That'd mm. be a fun trip. Right, Moist von Lipwig. <laughs> I think he would betray you if necessary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, you know, post post office Moist von mm. Lipwig. He'd be working yeah. all the time. He's got other stuff going on. I don't know yeah. if he'd travel. He's mm. got to take holidays, though, surely. I reckon yeah. he's... No, once he's yeah. in his thing, he can't drag him away from his project, even if you're like, we're going mm. to the beach. He's like, I'm still thinking okay. about Stan. I would go on a trip with Two Flower, mm. though. Like, he'd be, he's fun to go on a holiday with because he's like really into all the touristy stuff and he's taking pictures and he thinks everything is awesome. He's very enthusiastic. Like, young Two Flower. Interesting times <laughs> era, Two Flower is kind of a bit <laughs> jaded and horribly scarred by his post holiday experiences. But yeah, he's, he'd be great. I'd love to do that. If it was genuinely me getting to travel with any of these characters, I'd probably want to travel with Death because it's his things. Like, he's taking people away, but it's not ever really sad because they're moving on Mm. to their next thing. And it would be interesting insight. Plus, you would get to go to literally quite a lot Mm. of different places. So, you get interesting insights and get to see the world in a weird way. And Mm. I'd also get to see his domain, which would be cool. I was wondering if Susan, for the same token, might be an interesting travel companion. Also, I don't know. I like Mm. learning stuff. Teachers are cool. (laughs) And she's very organised. Yeah, I and that yeah. is very – I appreciate that very much. I cannot travel with people who run late. A lot of my friends are lovely and they oh. all run late all of the time. I don't travel very often. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> now, this next question is one that we briefly sort of, I guess, brought up, but we didn't really talk too much about it. But this is from Old Monk on Twitter. He says, look, it's not specific to this book, but he's in it and it seems appropriate – how did Rincewind get into Unseen University in the first place? Was he ever good at magic before the great spell got into his head? Is he the eighth son of an eighth son? Any ideas? How did he manage it? What is your headcanon of Rincewind becoming a wizard? I mean, because I have one, and it's partly based on things that are said in this book. I feel that like he had such a miserable childhood that is very vaguely alluded to, where he, if you remember, his mother ran away. He never knew who his mother was. But- I think he was abandoned and I think, you know, he's sort of brought up in some sort of orphanage because he's got these memories of a childhood that was awful and which he hated. And he vaguely remembers his grandmother, I think, in one of the early books. But I think he's just sort of had a bit of magical aptitude in one way or another or someone has worked out that he is technically the eighth son of an eighth son or they think he is but they're not 100% sure and that's why he's been sent to the university at a fairly young age, and I think he's then ended up being a student there for a very long time because he's not actually good at any of the magical parts of being a wizard. He passed, like, an entrance exam, like, he he's... Because he retains knowledge about how magic works, and he understands that kind of stuff. He just can't do it. So, I feel like he's kind of good at the theory, but not the practice, in a sense. Do you think he's kind of like in Thief of Time, where you talk a little bit about the orphans that go to the various guilds? Do you think... With yours, he could have been an orphan at the university, perhaps, or in some way. Like, obviously, mm. it feels like wizards definitely couldn't look after small children. But, um. Yeah. Yeah, I think he would have had to grow up a bit mm-hmm. first and then go in. Because it's the university doesn't seem to do, you know, pre-university yeah. education. And they don't generally take young people. Like, that's a whole thing in Equal Rights when mm-hmm. Esk turns up. She's very young and they're like, she's too young, you know. So, the opposite of the Jedi thing. Too young to begin <laughs> the training, you know. Yeah, I think there's something along those lines. That's that's how I imagine it. Because it's also kind of the only family he really has now. 
And he's bookish. Are there any other libraries? So, like, wherever he started from, is that just sort of where he gravitated towards because that's where the books are, whether they're magic or not? Mm. Maybe he got there through L-Space. And you see those glimpses of him, like, in The Colour of Magic, he's the one who's, like, always hoping that the world will make sense beyond just a wizard did it. Like, he's the one who, when Two Flower has all these amazing inventions from the counterweight continent that nobody in Akmorpork has seen before then, like the iconograph and his glasses and other things, he's like, oh, great, you know, this work on scientific principles, like, you know, he's excited about that, which means he's clearly thought about that kind of stuff. So, maybe the natural philosopher kind of side of wizardry is, again, something that he has got a bit of an aptitude for, even though he can't cast spells or actually do mm. magic. He always felt like a bit of a yeah. pre-ponder to me, like before mm. ponder was around. Mm. It was like, this is kind of ponder, but, yeah, I don't know. has similar elements to ponder in some ways, but just in a, mm. a more likeable, unlikable kind of way. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think ponder definitely takes over that aspect of, mm. of his role once he turns up. Maybe he got a scholarship to the university. He's a scholarship boy. That does seem to be a thing. Yeah. Mm. That's kind of how Victor Chugelbend, is, is, he's got like a rich uncle who's like sponsoring him to be at the university. And so he's like a perpetual student there because as long as he's a student, his uncle pays for everything or, or something along those lines. I forget exactly how it works, which is a parody of another book, which, yeah, I thought was interesting because if it does cost you money to go to Unseen University, who's paying for mm. Rincewind? So maybe he has got a scholarship as an orphan who's an eighth son of an eighth son, or maybe they always take eight sons of eight sons because otherwise they're going to be wizards who don't know how to not blow up the world and make sorcerers. I can't just imagine him always there. Like I also kind of feel like if he just sort of was dropped off there and they're kind of like, we don't take young people, but he can just sort of hang about until until he's old enough and he just sort of like skulks around the kitchen and maybe some of the like the housekeeper looks after him a bit but he kind of raises himself and spends time in the library and after a while everyone's just kind of forgotten that he, he like he's just part of the landscape and he's just there so like i feel like he could get away with not paying get away with the age thing because he'd get away with not having aptitude because like oh it's a problem for later but enough happens that they're like oh Rintwin's always been here so you know of mm. course he's you know doing this stuff and just don't ask questions he's he's just part of the university yeah, fair enough. I don't know. I like yours better. I think that logic's through. It's a, we, we don't know. And I think, you know, it is one of those things that is fun to think about, but ultimately it, it, the point of him is that he's terrible wizard. <laughs> so how he got there doesn't, doesn't matter from a narrative sense, but it's an interesting thing to think about. So thanks for that question, old monk. Molokov had a couple of questions via Discord. Given that The Last Hero features so many different characters appearing, which ones would you have liked to have seen made a cameo and what would they have done? So who do you think is missing here? Because we kind of have, we have the watch represented, we have the wizards, we have the patrician. <laughs> the witches. <laughs> the witches. What? Because yeah, you'd think they would know or they would want to know that the end of the world was coming and they do live quite close to the hub. So they could have maybe have gotten there on their own <laughs> quite fast because they're already nearly there. What would they have done, though? Granny would yeah. have sorted it out. I think if the witches were involved, there wouldn't be a story. Like, it would just have been <laughs> fixed. It, like, you need the wizards to make it more <laughs> blustery and, like, an adventure and take, you know, be noticed. Yeah. Yeah. It'd mm -hmm. be too efficient in their handling. Not <laughs> exciting. Fair enough. But is there anyone who, who could have shown up who would have added to the story? I would have liked Sakharissa Chris Clock 
coming and interviewing everyone because I think yeah, I, I double-checked to make sure that the book order works. So, like, Truth came out, it's 25th, and this is the 27th um, one in the series. So, yeah, and I just like the idea of the interviews with the different astronauts and how, like, Leonard and Carrot and Ritzwind and how they would, like, take on those interview questions. I feel like that could be a fun little thing. Yeah, mm. and then you could do some newspaper illustrations. Ugh, anyway. <laughs> That would have been great. And and uh, Otto could have taken the photo of yep. them before they went off on their journey. That would have been great. Oh, I, that's genius. Sybil was mentioned, but I would have liked to see her being like, excuse me, my dragons. <laughs> like a bit, a bit, because like some of them did blow up. And so I feel yeah. like. And also like when they, when they discard the stages yeah. of the salmon, they just let them That'd fall. And they're like, he's very careful to mention that you see the dragons sort of flapping around and flying back towards the disc. But you're also like, surely they're just going to get lost in space somewhere. Like, is this okay? Maybe back to the moon. Yeah. Uh, I did, I did wonder about that. And I, I was a bit sad that we didn't even get an interchangeable Emma. Mm. on the ship full of dragons, like, looking after them. I thought that would have been appropriate. And, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I feel like Sybil would have insisted that she be there looking after them. That would have been great. Uh, yeah. I also did want to know what name you'd give your pet moon dragon. Crackers. Because the cheese is, yeah, <laughs> moon cheese. made of cheese and firecrackers. I feel like it's a great dragon name, just saying. That is a great that name. Is the perfect mm. dragon name. I think I call mine Gromit. Yeah, for similar reasons. Because of cheese. <laughs> yeah. For similar reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Liz? Oh, I've just got the worst one stuck in my head. I'm going to try and find <laughs> a better one. But you came up with yours so quickly. I'm like, oh. Probably have to go with my cat naming convention and go with a famous science fiction author at some point. So, um. Who's who's written the best book about the moon? Or dragons. Mm. Vern? You call it? McCaffrey. <laughs> McCaffrey. That's a good name. <laughs> mm. That's a very good name for a moon dragon. Okay, that's genius. <laughs> Um, Ian Banks wanted to know, what would we like to give back to the gods? Ian says he'd like to give back those <laughs> little plastic wrappers that straws come in on little boxes of fruit drink. So I laughed because I read it before you said it. And I was like, that's, that's, yes. <laughs> oh, that is very good. Yeah. But what could we, what could we give back? What do we hate? This is like a room 101. <laughs> like if you not heard, this is a BBC radio show where they get a celebrity on and they ask them, you know, what is the thing that you hate the most that you wish you could put in a room and never see ever again? And they call it Room 101 after the room that has your greatest fear in it from um, 1984. But what what would you give back to the gods? Like, no, thank you. Don't want that. My overwhelming sense of external dread. Existential dread, even. <laughs> it's not external. <laughs> I mean, it's it could be external. <laughs> uh, it certainly has been more so these last few years. But yes. No, that yeah, they yeah. can have that back. Brain gremlins, they can have the brain mm. gremlins back. Don't need those. Don't want them. Most of reality television. <laughs> Most. What's the one that you, yeah, what's the bit that you would keep? Would you no, I feel like we can keep like five because there's some that people absolutely love and they build their career off of, but then there's an absolute dross around the edges. So I feel like there's a core of it and I don't want to take away some people's favorite like genre of thing, sure. but I just want to concentrate it into a the best. good, yeah. 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 So um, I'm happy for it to all go. Like, it can just all go, but I'm just trying to be nice to those who like it. Maybe we can keep that one where people bid on um, storage lockers that they haven't seen the contents of <laughs> and everything else can go. <laughs> I quite like the okay. repair shop, if that counts as reality TV, where they fix stuff for people. Like, they bring in their old treasured heirlooms and, like, this is the teddy my grand gave me, and then they fix it up and make it, you know, fresh again, and then they all cry, and it's actually quite nice and very British. It's in a shed in the country. It's I lovely. call that documentary and we can okay. keep that and antiques roadshow like those are <laughs> okay. those are fine that's amazing 
I want to see that. Yeah, the I haven't repair heard shop? of it. And, yeah. Oh, the repair shop, and there's an Australian version coming soon. I hear. <laughs> what? Okay, mm. that's amazing. Uh, mm. I don't know what I give back to them. Like toxic masculinity? I don't know. Like, there's so many things. I don't know if they'd take that. Um, they'd probably go, we didn't make that. That's your fault. And I'm like, yeah. sure, that's fair. That's fair. It is our fault. We need to fix it ourselves. There's too many things, but that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah. And we'll finish off, as we traditionally do, with a question from Sven. But Sven, who asked this question via Discord, has gone all out. He's given us a whole plethora of ones to choose from. Uh, we kind of already covered a couple of these things. He does want to know, what would be your evil dumb minion's name and your special thing as an evil dumb minion? You know, would you be a, a zombie with no flesh? Would you be uh, Armpit? <laughs> Which is such a good name. What a good name for an evil character. Is what do it you think? like if we are the minion, what's our name or what would our minion's name be? Well, I, mm. I mean, you could go either way. Well, if you had one, what would be your ideal stupid evil minion? Well, as an evil dark lord, I feel like there's a lot of narcissism involved. So it'd have to be like an anagram of my name or like just bits of it. Um, and all of them would have anagrams of my name. So like it would just to show that they are my minions, but like not me, you know, because like it's all messed up. That's um, great. Mm. I would want to go like escape room style. My minions would have to have names that were clues as to how to escape. Mm. <laughs> that's what I would do. I can't think of a good example, but an anagram of like the password for the exit. That'd be great. Oh, that's so good. Much smarter answers than mine. I was going to be like Steve. But that's know. also great. <laughs> that's also a good name. I, I'm a big fan of like weird contraptions. So I, I feel like they'd be like mm-hmm. a strange clockwork robot thing that doesn't quite work properly. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my favorite, I think, Evil Minion. <laughs> Maybe oh, mine be could good. be solar powered. Ooh. Mm. Because then they don't work sometimes, so they just have to wait for the sun to go down and the residual power to be used up, and then there's like a window of time where you can escape from my minions. Wow. But they're also environmentally conscious. Very good. Uh, I, I think it. Steve would be a um, receptionist. Try, like he, he's like he's blocking the way to get to me, and he basically just misunderstands everything you say. That's his power. Like he just can't quite understand what you're trying to ask him. I'm immediately thinking of the character of Kevin from the Ghostbusters film, uh, yeah. played by yeah. Chris Hemsworth, yeah. who's the he's just very pretty but very stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love see it. that. Oh, so good. We'll finish off with this last question of yours, Sven. Uh, some of the other ones I feel like we already kind of touched on, but since this is the first major character death of the book series, closing off the Cohen series, in your eyes, which characters deserved a send off? And does it feel that Terry closed some series on purpose? Now, we want to make sure we're not spoiling any books we haven't covered on the podcast yet. So we haven't done too many past this. And there's not, it's not really a lot of big character deaths in the Discworld books anyway. A lot of them are characters who arrive in a particular book. But is there anyone that you think really deserved a proper send off and end to their story that doesn't really get one? Um, so spoilers for soul music. Um, I've forgotten his name, but the, the buddy Holly guy, the main oh, yeah. character, the protagonist. Who, yes. Yeah. Um, he just kind of like, that's his book. He only gets one, but we don't quite know how it plays out. And there's a few characters. I just would have liked that tied off a bit better, but also maybe I like the ambiguity. I'm not sure. So, hmm. hmm. Terrible oh. answer from me. No, I, I mean, I can think of a couple. Mort, you just reminded me, but sort of Mort and Isabel kind of get one because in Soul Music, we kind of find out that they die in a horrible crap. But, but I kind of want to, I would love to see 
part of me, like, I understand why we didn't see it, but I also, part of me wants to know, they knew they only had so many years to live because of the way they were saved from death by death. And I would kind of like to see what their last years or or even months were like, like, as they knew it was coming. Like, Mm. what, how did they prepare for that? What? Because I think that would be an interesting, I think Terry would have interesting things to say. I don't think there's a novel in that. I think it's more like a short story, but that would be good. And I sometimes feel like, and maybe this is a spoiler because you now know it doesn't happen, but I sometimes feel like Rincewind's death is one that kind of needs to be chronicled because, like, I can't imagine how it would happen because he keeps surviving mm. all of this stuff. And what would be his happy ending, you know? It's probably, like, the opposite of what Cohen wants. Like, it probably is, like, dying in his sleep in the library, you know, or, uh, while reading a book or something like that. But I wonder- how does his life end? Like, when does he run out of adventures and stop having to run away from things? And what does he become? There's, there's, uh, again, I don't know that that would make a very interesting book, but I, I kind of be interested in that send off. I agree, but I feel like because this whole thing is running away and finding himself in adventures, what if he never dies? And what actually happens is he gets like, lost in L space or like the monks catch him up and he like takes a wrong turn and suddenly he's a young man again. He's in the unseen university. No one's quite sure how he got here. He's got some memories of a terrible childhood. And what's this? I'm living my whole life again over and over and over on loop. Like the, the worst groundhog day ever. Yeah. The, groundhog the coward life. with a thousand banks yeah. going around in circles. Oh, yeah. wow. That's oh. full on. Time is a flat circle, is Yeah, but he doesn't remember. He just gets flashes of it. Otherwise, it would be true torture. But, yeah, he's just kind of like, oh, maybe that's why he's so good at escaping, because he's escaped before. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. Wow. And he always does seem to have had many more adventures than we ever hear about. Maybe mm. that's just him remembering the adventures he's about to have. So bookmaking that canon, I would like. Cause I feel like that ties <laughs> off his story and explains yeah. how he got into the university, because he's just always been there and, you know. That's just, fair. I do have one more, though. I reckon Vetinari, because we've often speculated what's his plan for that. And I think mm. seeing that and, and knowing, and him, whether, whether or not that means he dies or, or whether he like sort of hands over the reins of the city and just vanishes, <laughs> which I feel is what would happen, you know, and, and it wouldn't be the plot of a whole book, but it would happen at the end of a plot. Mm. I feel like that could have been, that could have been good. Or do you think it would be the start of a story? And that would like mm. like init- like ignite what's going to happen next and introduce you to the new patrician type character mm. or, or replacement person. Yeah, right. well, I mean, we've speculated that it's probably it would probably be moist. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, which I think I think makes the most sense out of the characters that we've met. But it, it's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that could be yeah, it could be the start yeah. of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to read it so bad. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Just to enter the other bit of your question, Sven, does it feel like Terry closed some series on purpose? I think, yeah, I think I think he definitely ended Cohen on purpose. And he's like, we don't need any more of this. Uh, not, not because I'm sick of writing it, but because his whole story is about being an old man. And that story has to be about death at some point. You know, um, if it's, if you're talking about the, the last stages of life and it's such a, theme running through all of Pratchett's work anyway, I think he, I think it, it had to happen. But it's interesting that maybe that he doesn't do it very often. Does Leonard Decorum get a send-off at any point or is he just always in the background? 
Good question. I don't think think he crops up much after this book from memory. Mm. But he's kind of like legendary, so I feel like leaving him open-ended to come in whenever and never having an end, like, works. As much as I'd like to just have vast reams of books just about him. Yeah. I mean, that's that's fair. I would love that too. But no, I'm pretty sure he, he only shows up in a cameo in like one or two more books after this. Do you think that giving Cohen a send-off and sort of semi-closing that series was needing to be done because the Discworld had evolved so much since the original sort of Cohen? Because like where they started, they were quite it was quite a different kind of vibe mm, to the Discworld mm. series and like how it evolved over time changed much more like it was much less just straight parody to more like I don't know philosophical musings or hmm. <laughs> not sure exactly how to word it but what's well, interesting because this feels like a logical kind of endpoint to the short story Trollbridge which is entirely about Cohen reflecting on the way that the world has changed and now it's not the world that he was a barbarian hero in and this is sort of that writ large whereas Interesting Times and his earlier appearances are not really about that. I mean, Interesting Times mm. sort of is a little bit, I guess, but not not nearly as much as this book and not as much as Trollbridge. So, in, in that sense, I think that it's sort of a consistent theme that runs throughout. But I think you're right that the Discworld has become much more that kind of world than it used to be, whereas it used to be much more like your kind of Tolkien-derived fantasy world. Hmm. I think that kind of brings us to the end of the episode. George, thank you for joining us for such a great chat about this book. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. If people want to find out more about you, is the best place to go your website? Where can they find you online? You're you're totally right there, Ben. It is my website, um, which is georgerexcomics.com, and that's George as in Costanza, Rex as in Dinosaur, and Comics as in The Thing You Read. And then from there, you can find out everything. I've just updated it. So please visit my website. It makes me feel like I've actually put in the effort for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, That's great. Uh, You should definitely check it out. There's lots of cool stuff on there. Um, I think last time you were on, you still had an Etsy shop, but now you've just got a shop on your website, right? So if you want to see cool postcards and stickers and illustrations and stuff, that's the place to go. I even have personalised stamps now. So if you order some stickers, you'll get a personalised official Australia Post George Rex comic stamp. That's so cool. <laughs> it's so silly. That's very, cool. <laughs> That's very cool. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a guest. Um, we've got a few things coming up we should quickly let you know about. First of all, we've got a bonus episode coming up later this month on the 25th, the glorious 25th of May. It is time for Eat Club. So watch out for that in your stream. That is where some of our subscribers get to choose what we will talk about. So watch out for that. That'll be fun. We don't yet know what those things will be. We're going to find out very soon, I hope. But thank you to all of our subscribers. Uh, We couldn't do this without you. And thank you to everyone else as well who listens. It's wonderful to have you on board. We are going to be taking a bit of a detour Away from the Discworld, for our next couple of episodes, we're going into the world of Terry Pratchett's more sci-fi-flavoured musings. And next time we're doing a short story, Liz, which is it's actually quite hard to know how to say this. Just a whole bunch of capital letters. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and a uh, hashtag. <laughs> but, I mean, I, it's look, as someone who did learn some programming, I feel like I can give it a go. We're reading a short story, If Def Debug plus World Slash Enough plus Time, uh, which is a great, great story. It's collected as they all are in a blink of the screen. So you can find it there. Um, and we'll be discussing that story with a special guest, sci-fi author, also from Adelaide, Sean Williams, 
who I'm very excited to have on the show. The very fascinating, interesting person. So if you've got any questions about that short story, hit us up with the hashtag Pratchat56, or you can send those in via email to chat at pratchatpodcast.com. And we're also going to mention the episode after that, because one of the reasons we're doing a short story is to give you a bit more time to read a very long book, because when we come back in, uh, now I'm thinking July, <laughs> to think so many months ahead for this show, we will be reading the next book in the Long Earth series, The Long Mars, with our old friend Joel Martin. And those books are quite long, and you may want to read the first two if you haven't started reading those books before. So here's a couple of months head start. Um, we'll be reading that in July. Uh, so get into that, The Long Mars. It's going to be I'm excited about this one. This I don't know where that series is going next. And no. that's quite intriguing. I love that, like, the long series is long. It is. It is. The long series is long, and each book in it is quite long. Uh, and lots of weird things happen, and it's it's always a fun time. But anyway, that's your heads up. But thank you again for listening. And until next time, remember, before you eat something in a tube, just check if it's paint or not. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Georgina Chatterton. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett55. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.